Hi, I'm Terrence Winter. I was an executive producer and writer on The Sopranos. You're listening to Pada Bing. I'm Vic Singh, and you're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos one episode at a time. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this right now. And please share this episode or your favorite one with one new person. If you love the podcast, you can support it at any level by visiting glow.fm slash potabing. Finally, as always, thank you for listening and being part of this journey. Coming up is a roughly three-hour conversation I had with Terrence Winter. Terry executive produced, wrote, and directed on the show from season two until the series finale. Next to Michael Imperioli walking into my office, this was a truly transformational moment. I spent the last week writing and rewriting questions for Terry, thinking and overthinking what to talk about, contemplating how the fuck to hold court with an Oscar-nominated writer and a core component and voice in this unrelenting obsession of mine that is The Sopranos. Terry was more generous with his time and insight than I could have ever imagined or asked for. I could have easily talked to him all day, but I forced myself to let him go. We talked about pivoting from straight and narrow career paths to pursuing shit we cared about most. We more or less talked about every single one of the episodes he wrote or co-wrote. We swapped fatherhood and parenting strategies. Terry told incredible off-the-cuff stories, clearly showing his gift in real time. Stories about how Sidney Pollack flew himself into work on the Stage 5 episode on his own little prop plane. We talked about the origin of Muscles Marinera, his new LeBron James project, and so much more. We finished each other's sentences at times. The whole thing is just absolutely ridiculous. And I'll never forget it. Add it to the top of the list of things I'll never forget about this project. That's it. I'm done. I'll honor Carmine's words and quote, get the fuck over it. Thank you, Terry. Thank you, listeners. Here's Terrence Winter. Terry, thank you for being here. Could not be happy to be here. Thanks for having me. And thank you for indulging these questions. You famously penned the line, remember when is the lowest form of conversation. I'm guilty as charged because that's exactly what we're about to do. But thank you. Well, I typed that line, but uh, in in uh, full candor, that came from David Chase. Uh, actually, a friend of her, his in high school, said that to him. I think if I'm remembering the story correctly, the they were at a party and they were all bullshitting about, you know, reminiscing about when they were kids. And there's one guy sort of sitting quietly off into the corner, and all the guys were talking about, "Oh, remember when this happened? Oh, remember when this when they And this guy out of nowhere just said, "Remember when is the lowest form of conversation?" <laughs> it was just such a fucking buzzkill. And David's, you know, David remembers everything, and he just said that, you know, he told that story, and then it, we incorporated it into the episode. But that line did originate with him. That line is epic. <laughs> it's great, and it is it is a 
show stopper. It is, it is absolutely a conversation stopper. It just makes you feel like an asshole. It just works. If you were to look up the phrase buzzkill in oh, like a dictionary there you go. or urban dictionary, yeah. it would be that quote. Because we all do it. And, yes. and it certainly has its place in conversation and life and everything else, but it's such a great way to make somebody feel like shit. One aspect of your story that resonates with me a lot because there is some overlap, you were a lawyer <laughs> yeah. and you pivoted to creative pursuits. Go back to the period where the shift occurred. What made you change course? To quote Melfi, talk about root causes. Right. It was a long, slow shift. It was like turning a battleship around. Uh, I loved TV and movies as a kid. I grew up in Brooklyn, you know, very blue-collar neighborhood uh, in the 60s and 70s. And there was nobody who worked in the entertainment industry. There was virtually no production back then. So the idea of growing up to go to Hollywood and be a writer or an actor was so outside my sphere of possibility that that didn't even occur to me. I just was a fan. But as I slowly grew up, one of my best friends was, you know, an insomniac, and he would watch movies late at night, and he, you know, one time said to me, you know, you know, the guy from My Three Sons, uh, you know, he was in a movie called Double Indemnity. He was a really bad guy. And I'm like watching all these old movies on, you know, late night TV. And he started to get into movies and we started to become movie fans. So slowly, you know, my interest in film and cinema and TV started to grow. But again, the idea of doing it for a living was just so outside the realm of anything. My only ambition as a kid was to be rich. And the only two jobs I knew that could get me there were doctor and lawyer, supposedly. Those are the only two professions I knew. So long circuitous route to college. You know, I I went to a vocational high school. I studied to be an auto mechanic, graduated, was in the delicatessen business, eventually realized I needed to get an education. I kind of scammed my way into NYU by telling them I wanted to study medieval religion, uh, which was my major, official major in 1980. Went to school full-time, went to uh, worked full-time at night. My entire education was financed through student loans. And, um, you know, I always liked to write. I had a high school teacher who singled me out and said, you're you're a really talented writer. You should think about going to college. And that was sort of in the back of my mind. So I took journalism classes at NYU. And this sounds incredibly naive, but it's the God's honest truth. I didn't know that NYU taught courses in film and television. I was accepted to the liberal arts wing, the WSUC. So I didn't know they had a law school or a medical school. I, I didn't know how colleges worked. Again, I came out of vocational high school. So the writing cl- classes offered were journalism. So I took journalism and I, I excelled at that. Uh, and when I was planning to go to law school, I asked one of my journalism professors, uh, a guy named Jerry Schwartz, who's, a, a, I believe, in, still an editor for the Associated Press, to write me a recommendation for law school. He said, I'd be happy to. Writes me a glowing recommendation and says, oh, by the way, there's another letter in that envelope for you. And that letter says, please don't go to law school. Please be a writer. And I was like, wow, this is the second grown-up who's told me I'm a talented writer. So I I actually looked into it. Messages. Yeah. And I'm thinking, wow, shit, is this possible? Can I be a writer? But at that point, I'm thinking journalism. So I looked into journalism as a a start. And it turns out the starting salary for, uh, you know, a reporter at the AP was less, paid less than half of what I was making as a doorman. I was actually, little Sopranos trivia, I was the midnight to eight doorman in the building where Robert Eiler lived. Okay. Yet he had not been born yet. Okay. <laughs> it was, this is 1982 yeah. to 84. But that's what I did. And so I was like, this is crazy. You know, I'm not going to take a 50% salary cut from a doorman job to, to go be, be rich. Yeah, exactly. Which is still was my ambition. So I go to law school. Go to night school.
school, slog my way through, hate every minute of it, worked for Merrill Lynch during school, graduate, get a job in a big Manhattan law firm. I finally have everything I think I want, the big law firm job, the salary, et cetera, et cetera, and I am absolutely miserable. Within the first week, I'm sneaking out during the day, going to see, uh, you know, going to movies, going to bookstores, just bullshitting my way through this job for two years. I was horrible at it. Finally, you know, as is as often the case with human beings, I was approaching 30. And the weight of the world was crushing down on me in terms of thinking, okay, this is my life. And then the questions are, okay, what do you want to do? really with your life. I said, forget the money, forget being rich. None of this is worth it. I couldn't, I didn't want to get out of bed in the morning and go to this job and nor did they want me to be there. And I finally was like, okay, the soul searching was, all right, I need to do something creative. Maybe, uh, maybe I'll be a salesman. And there's a little voice in my head saying, it's not sales. What is it? And I was like, well, maybe an ad copywriter. Cause I could do, no, 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 no. Go deeper. What is it? And the deep, dark secret was I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a TV writer. I wanted to be a sitcom writer. And once I was able to say that out loud, everything changed. How'd you arrive at that, though? Like, today, you've got podcasts, you've got all these books to, like, help you find your skills and interests, and this was a different era. Like, was it just... Internal it was monologue? thought processes. You know, I would, you know, part of those forays into, you know, the bookstores, I would read books about writing, you know, there were a couple of books about from screenwriters and stuff. I started to learn a little about Did the William how, Goldman book influence. Yeah, you? exactly that. There was another book by a guy named Carl, I wish I remembered the guy's name, who's one of the original writers on Moonlighting. Carl, I'll look it up later. Really interesting about, you know, breaking in and it's like, okay, people do this and there is a process to this. I also knew I was funny, you know, but, you know, it's funny. In the movie uh, Mr. Saturday Night, Billy Crystal talks about living room funny and being actually funny. It's funny, one thing to be funny with your friends and your family, but can you get on stage and make people laugh? That's a big leap, a huge leap. So I knew I was living room funny, no question. But then I said, okay, well, if you're going to actually pursue this and you want to be a sitcom writer and you want to do this professionally, can you write jokes and get on a stage and have people laugh? So for a couple of months in 1990, I did stand up in, in and around New York. So comic strip, Catch a Rising Star. I get on at 2 in the morning, like open night mics, you know, open mic nights. It's still early here. And, uh, and it worked. Mm. You know, I wasn't, you know, Jerry Seinfeld, but I wrote jokes and people laughed. It got the reaction. I said, okay, I'm not crazy. I can do this. And at some point I started, I, I knew what, I learned what a spec script was, which is a sample of your work. You do write an existing show. And I started writing scripts at home in New York. And one day it, it just occurred to me, I got, it would be so much easier if I lived in LA. So trying to get agents on the phone, trying to, and then I said, well, move to L.A. Your agency story is pretty great, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. you yeah. fabricated an agency. Yeah, when I, when I finally moved here, I, yeah. I came up with a phony agency and represented myself. That. But uh, once it, it occurred to me, like, oh, well, move to L.A. I sort of sold everything, quit my job, whatever I was doing, said goodbye to everybody. And people thought I lost my mind. They were like, okay, let's, let's just get this straight. You were where you, Went to a vocational high school, studied to be an auto mechanic. You graduate. Somehow you get into NYU. You graduate. You go to law school. You pass the New York bar exam. You're basically on partnership track if you don't pass fuck this bars. up. two bars. Two bars, Connecticut and New York. Thank you. And, uh, you know, if you don't screw this law firm thing up, you could be a partner in a Manhattan law firm. You're going to quit that and move to L.A. You've never been west of Chicago, and you've never written a script before. Are you crazy? And I said, yeah, probably, but I know I'm right. I absolutely know this is my destiny. And I showed up here on May 8th, 1991. I did not know a soul. I basically felt like I parachuted into town, and it was 
absolutely exhilarating. For the first time, I knew exactly what I needed to do. I came here and I said, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to learn this business. I would literally go into 7-Eleven, pick Variety up, stand there at the magazine rack and read Variety cover to cover because I couldn't afford to buy it. You know, the guy would say, yeah, it's not a library. I'd say, yeah, I know, I know. And I'm just like slowly figured out Hollywood. Like, okay, Mike Ovitz is the head of this agency, CAA, and this guy runs Warner Brothers and this guy runs Universal. Oh, Universal just bought this movie written by this guy and I started to figure out who everybody was. And I started writing spec scripts. And I lived like a monk. I got a share in an apartment in West Hollywood with two other guys who were also aspiring writers. And I got a I took my law degree off my resume and I got a job as a paralegal at Unical, the oil company downtown, where they thought I was the smartest paralegal ever because I knew way beyond what a paralegal was. I never told them I was a lawyer. So I just worked eight seven forty five to four thirty with my hours. So I I took the bus downtown, came back to West Hollywood. By six PM I was in my room and writing and lived like a monk. And I just said there's failure's not an option. I'm thirty years old. I have got to make Make this work. No plan B. No. I would not take the California bar exam specifically because I was like, I am not going back to being a lawyer. This is going to work. And I just studied TV shows like people study, you know, like engineers study how to put a radio together. I would watch, you know, I always remember watching Home Improvement because I wanted to write a spec of Home Improvement. I would watch an episode of Home Improvement scene by scene. I'd watch a scene. I'd stop the tape, write down what happened in the scene, watch the next scene, write down, write the, sort of make a reverse outline. So I studied story structure and then specifically, okay, this is how they do it on Home Improvement. For example, I still remember... The first scene back from every commercial break, Tim Allen would talk to the guy over the backyard fence. It always happened in that spot. The cold open had nothing to do with the show. The first scene would introduce whatever the problem was. He'd meander and then fuck something up, and then the commercial would happen, and they would get some advice from the guy over the backyard fence. He'd use that advice to solve the problem. Oh, that's how you tell a home improvement episode, and now I wrote one. And I did the same thing with Cheers and Frasier and Seinfeld and Mad About You and Doogie Howser, name it, you know, uh, The Wonder Years. I just kept writing and studying and going down to the Writers Guild and calling agents on the phone and just boom, boom, boom. And I had to deal with myself that I would not go to sleep at night unless I did something to further my writing career. Mm. I'd lay in bed and go, what'd you do today? I mailed a script. I wrote a scene. I called an agent. And if I couldn't say I did something, I'd get out of bed and do it. Because then I could go to bed and go, okay, you're this much closer to being a writer. Absolutely. And I I couldn't, I had to do it, you know? And it was, it was, uh, you know, took me a couple of years, but I uh, obviously worked out (laughs) it obviously worked out and you know i gotta say uh before i continue this podcast is proof positive that this was your calling because the jokes that you wrote and they weren't really jokes because you weren't joke writing on the sopranos but they are natively it is natively humorous and they still make people laugh 20 years later so that's great that's a huge well i should say right here and i said it to you when i when i came in i have not seen the show since it went off the air uh, I've seen Pine Barrens a couple of times because we've been at festivals and stuff and they've shown the episode, but I literally have not seen the show in its entirety or an episode since 2007. Mm. So I'm a little rusty, but thanks. And it's funny, people sometimes come up to me and compliment me on things and say, oh, this joke you wrote. And I go, oh, wow, yeah, I don't even remember it. Yeah, yeah but you generally, <laughs> I, I generally remember who wrote what. And I can yeah. remember even shows way beyond The Sopranos, who pitched the joke in the room. Oh, you know, that was Dave Labatt. That was Mike Price, Solid and Patterson, whoever. I remember mm. sitting there and I remember who's. So I, I'm always skeptical. Writers go, oh, I don't remember who. I, yeah, you do. You remember every fucking word. <laughs> well, I look forward to getting into it with you. Uh, a couple of other things before we tee that up. Describe your career arc on The Sopranos. You're credited as 
producer, supervising producer, co-executive producer, Mm -hmm. executive producer, and writer. I'm assuming each title came with increased levels of responsibility, but for those unfamiliar, can you describe each role in your own words? Sure. I mean, the best analogy for those producer titles in the writing world is like private, corporal, sergeant, lieutenant, captain. As you grow up the ladder, staff writer would be your private, and then, you know, story editor, your corporal co-producer, you're at sergeant level, et cetera, on and up, on and up the ladder. Um, you know, there are a lot of producer titles in TV. Some of them, uh, many of them, most of them are writers, and those are titles that, that reflect uh, levels of responsibility or, or uh, experience. Some of them are more technical. Uh, some producers are, you know, like Eileen Landris on The Sopranos was in charge of you know, you know, the crews, the, the salaries, the, you know, where do we park the trucks, you know, the liaisoning with all the different department heads, that sort of stuff. Mm. That's one way of producing. A writer's style of producing is to make sure that the words that are in the script are getting onto the screen in the manner in which we intended. So I would go, or any of the writer producers on the show, once you have an episode that you're going now to produce. It was my responsibility to attend with the director the costume meeting, the stunt meeting, the makeup meeting, the location scouting. And I'd be there at the side of the director if he or she had any questions in terms of, okay, is this what we want to do? Is this what we intend? This is what we want. And then during the entire shoot, I'd be on set. And if anybody had a question, the director or one of the actors, one of the writers would always be there to answer that question. If we couldn't answer the question, we would call David, you know, 24 hours a day, get David on the phone and say, what do you think about this? Or what's the answer to that? You know, nine times out of 10, you'd, you'd try to make that decision on your own. But you know, you really needed to make sure it was okay with David. Everything got ran through him. As you're describing that, I'm thinking of, of I always think of sports analogies in my head. I'm thinking of the football players in the field have to call upstairs. Yep, absolutely. To, to check in. Yep. <laughs> I just love that analogy. You've talked about how you first got involved with the show in the past. Yeah. I'm not going to ask that again, but there's two aspects of your answer that I'd like to focus on. One, what prompted your agent to put the Sopranos pilot in front of you to begin this whole thing, if you will. And second, you initially said somewhere that David wasn't interested in the sample you put forth, but despite Mm -hmm. that, you parlayed it into a meeting. Right. How did you sell him? Uh, First part of the question is my agent was very familiar with my background. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, uh, in and around a lot of guys who felt like characters from The Sopranos. Mm. Uh, actually Tony Sirico lived in my neighborhood as a young, as a teenager, I knew him as junior Sirico, who was this legendary guy. He, I, you know, heard, oh, he's an actor, but he's also, you know, kind of a wise guy. He'd been to jail, really scary, tough guy. So there was a lot of guys like that in the neighborhood. I actually worked in a butcher shop from age 13 to 15 or 16 that was owned by Paul Castellano. You ever brush shoulders with him? No, no. My, although my brother took his one of his daughters to her high school prom. <laughs> my brother's 10 years older than me. But he owned a chain of butcher shops called Castellano and Sons, the CNS meat market. He was, had been a butcher in his early life. So I, you know, there was a lot, of, a lot of that stuff around. So I just, you know, by osmosis started to just understood how these guys thought and talked and acted. Mm. When I was uh, a little older, I, I you know, I, I hustled. I worked my ass off as a kid. I w- worked in the butcher shop. I waxed cars on the weekends. I was actually even, despite being a Catholic, I was, a waiter at a synagogue in our neighborhood on the weekends. So I worked at weddings and bar mitzvahs and stuff. The rabbi at that point uh, one day pulled me aside and said, hey, you know, I've been 
looking at you, you seem like you're a pretty sharp kid. We're doing a thing here uh, to raise money for Israel. It's kind of like a Las Vegas night where we play card games and stuff. Do you want to be the kid who gives out the coffee and cake? So it was basically what Henry Hill did in Goodfellas. Mm. I was that kid. So I showed up the first night where they do Las Vegas night. It's a full-blown fucking casino in a, in a synagogue in Brooklyn on Avenue R. Clearly run by wise guys. I didn't know who they were, but I knew they were gangsters. It wasn't until years and years later I read the book called Murder Machine. And it was a gang, a, the casino was run by a guy named Roy DeMeo and his crew, who were the most murderous crew in Brooklyn in the 80s. At the time, by 1983, these guys had killed more people than the Iraqi army. So that's who I was working for. So I understood that world pretty well. My agent knew that. So he's like, okay, this is for you. Secondly, uh, once he sent it to me, I watched the pilot and I swear to God, I was trembling. Uh, this was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. Not because I just knew the world, but I just thought this these people feel real. They feel like people who live on my block. I know they're actors, but this is whoever wrote this is just nailed it. I have to be part of this show. I knew that unlike anything else I had ever seen, that this would be the purest uh, expression of my voice as a writer as that I could possibly find. And one of the guys who gave me my first job was a guy named Frank Renzulli. Frank co-created a show called The Great Defender, and he and I were very good friends. Watch this pilot. Before I finished it, I called my agent and said, get me on this fucking show. My second call was to Frank Renzulli. Have you seen this thing, The Sopranos? He goes, yeah, I'm actually meeting with this guy, David Chase, on Friday. And Frank was way higher up the writer's food chain at that point. He was a, at the supervising producer level. So I said, you got to get me in there with you. He said, yeah, let me, let me meet this guy and talk to him. So Frank met with David. And Frank became the last guy David hired for the writing staff for season one, and then the doors closed. Mm. And he's like, yeah, I can't, you know, can't. so I was like, shit, I got to watch. So I sat out season one as a spectator. I was writing on a show called The PJs, this Eddie Murphy uh, foam-mation show, which is really funny, created by Larry Wilmore and Steve Tompkins. And uh, doing that and then watching from afar as Frankie started the early days in the writer's room on Sopranos. So we would talk every day. He'd call me up, tell me stories, what they're working on. He ended up t- telling me the day, you know, I think he pitched the original idea for college where Meadow goes to look at schools with Tony and listening. And then even, it's funny, you know, David and I laugh at it now, but Frank was writing his early scenes and then sending them to me to edit. So I was kind of writing on the first season of The Sopranos. I'd add jokes, I'd add lines, I'd clean it up, send it back to Frank, had it go, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, as season one progressed... It was clearly something you would have done for free at that oh, point. Oh, absolutely. And that's kind of the beauty I practically of it. did when I got yeah. hired. So... As season one progressed, uh, writers, you know, as happens, didn't work out. So a lot of the people started getting let go, you know, the, of the early staff. The only people who survived were Robin Green and Mitch Burgess and Frank and David. So when season two came along, David was open to bring on new writers. So finally, so all during that year, I wrote a script. Uh, my first feature, it ultimately became a movie called Brooklyn Rules. And it was a story about me and my two best friends growing up in New York uh, you know, as teenagers and, you know, and, uh, in our early twenties, I guess. And it had a mob component. And I thought, oh, this is perfect. This is a great sample for David. He's going to read it and hire it. So I give it to Frank. So I give this to David. David reads it. I call, he calls, Frank calls me a week later. He goes, he hates it. I said, what? <laughs> he goes, he fucking hates it. I said, you're kidding me. He goes, no, but Frankie, and, and to his credit, he said to David, look, I'm, t- forget this script. I'm telling you this guy can write the show. 
And David said, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll have him in. I'll meet him. So I went in, and I met David, and Frank took himself out of the process at that point. And it was me, David, Robin Green, and Mitch Burgess. And we went in, and we sat down, and we just riffed on a story that ultimately became the first episode I wrote, Big Girls Don't Cry. Mm. And I remember one of the things I first did when I was in on the stand-up circuit trying to break in as a, as a writer, somebody also had told me, well, you know, it's very helpful for writers to take acting classes. It, it kind of gives you an idea of what you're asking an actor to do. So I had Taking acting lessons in New York, horrible actor. And but we you know we talked about the idea. Oh, maybe Christopher takes acting right. lessons. And I said, oh, actually, we did that, and I did this, ex- you know, this exercise where you just had to do the A B thing, and you know, we laughed about it, and it was clear, you know, Dave and I had a very similar sense of humor, and you know, Robin and Mitch, and we, it was a great meeting, and ultimately the deal was at the end of it. Okay, we came up with an outline, and I also had told them the story about about a psychic I had gone to, which we did a uh, an episode where Paulie goes to the psychic. Yeah. That was completely out of the story. I told about a psychic I visited. So anyway, it was a good meeting. And uh, we came up with an outline. It was like, okay, here's your audition. Go write a script. So you have two weeks to turn in a first draft. And David is, is very plays things very close to the vest. You you know, you, you could know David for the first two years and not know whether or not he loves you or hates you. Although, as I would say to people as the years went by, people would say, I don't think David likes me. And I'd say, well, I, I know he likes you. Do you know how I know? And they say, I know how. I said, well, you're still here. You're still here. Yeah, exactly. if he doesn't like you, you'll be gone in 30 seconds. Yeah. So he likes you. He doesn't might not show it, but the fact that you're here means he likes you. So anyway, I, I knew this was now for all the marbles. This was career changing. So I was working on the PJs at the time in long hours, some Sometimes sitcoms or 16-hour days. But I would go home. I'd get up at 3 in the morning. And from 3 to 7, I was writing my soprano spec. And I knew, not spec, this was my audition script. And I knew if this goes well, there's an offer. And then I find out, oh, there's another guy who's auditioning. This guy named Todd Kessler. And I was like, oh, fuck. I'm, I'm competing with somebody else. So... I, I finished my script over the two weeks. I hand it in, and Todd apparently hands his in, and now I have a mole, Frank Renzulli, and I'm asking Frank, how did the other guy do? He goes, you know, it's, he did pretty well. It's almost like Chris and Furio. They totally. were trying out in your episode that you wrote. You yeah, know? yeah, Chris totally. is trying to prove himself. He can't collect. Yep. Fur- Tony yeah. has to send Furio in to do the job. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Parallel. So it never occurred to me that David could hire two people, because I'm thinking it's either me or Todd. And I'm like, oh, fucking Frank. He calls me, he goes, yeah, this guy's script is actually really good. And he goes, David likes yours too. I was like, oh, fuck. I was really hoping this other guy would shit to bed, and he did it. And he, Todd's a hugely talented writer. So finally, the idea comes, oh, David's going to hire both of us. Oh, great. So David calls me up. And at this point, I'm a co-producer on the PJs. And I've been working for six or seven years. But I, I was uh, unique in the sense, or not unique, but rare in the sense that I was a writer who did comedy and drama. So I would ping pong between sitcoms and dramas back and forth. And every time I would go to a, like I'd go from a comedy to a drama and I'd want a, uh, a title increase. i go, no, but you were on a sitcom. So I'd always make a lateral move title-wise. And then I'd go back and they go, oh, well, that was a drama. You know, so I'd always, I was at the co-producer level for an inordinate amount of time. So anyway, I finally get, David wants to make me an offer and he calls me up and he says, um, you know, I'd, I'd love you to come on the show. I'd, I'd like to make you an offer to be story editor uh, at such and such amount of money. Story editor is a step down from co-producer. And it, it just crushed me. And I was like, uh, I, I'm a, I, I need co-producer. I'm at the co-producer level now. He said, well, that's the offer. And I said, can, can I call you back? So I, I hung up. I called my agent. I said, I don't, I don't think I could do this. My agent is like, all right, I can't advise you at this point. This is The Sopranos. This is the biggest show on TV. you got to make the decision. 
I said, okay. So I called David, and uh, I think my voice went up about four octaves. And I said, hi, David. <laughs> I would really love to be on this show, but um, I can't take story editor. I'm sorry. Psychologically, I can't get up in the morning and look myself in the mirror and know that I took a step back to be on your show. I know I can write your show. I would love to be on your show, but I can't take this offer. That sounds like the clincher right there. And there was, I didn't know that was exactly the right thing to say to David. And I, he said, huh. Uh, okay, let me call you back. And I hung up, and I, I put my head in my hands. And I, I was not happy working on, on the PJs. It was a rough job. I so badly wanted to go and do this show. And I hung up the phone, and I said, I cannot believe I just fucking turned down a job on The Sopranos. And it was the longest 15 minutes of my life, and David called me back. I said, okay, fine. It was only 15 minutes, Yeah, though. thank God. Oh, man. And, uh, and at that point, he said, all right, great. You start, you know, two weeks from now, meet us in New York, and we'll start season two. And... It was like, it was the greatest thing. And I walked in, you know, to Larry Wilmore and Steve Tompkins at that point, And a lot of people had been jumping ship from the PJs going on to other shows. So I walked in. As soon as I knocked on the door, Larry looked. I said, I got to talk to you guys. And Larry looked at me and went, you're not leaving. And I went, uh, he goes, what show is it? I said, The Sopranos. And he went, oh, motherfucker. <laughs> he goes, all right. He goes, I'm not going to be the asshole that prevented you from working on The Sopranos. Like, okay, go. And that was it. And. Uh, he goes, do you want to finish out the day? I said, no, not really. Yeah, I love that. I love <laughs> I that. get that. I, yeah. said, I said goodbye to everybody. I left. I came back a couple of weeks later and took everybody out to lunch, and that was it. I can't even imagine or quantify what the high must have been like when it when It was unbelievable. Thing. It really, again, was life-changing. And then it became terrifying because, you know, for Todd Kessler and me, because we thought, what if the show, if the show isn't as successful in season two, they're going to look and say, well, what changed? Like, who are these two fucking idiots? And it's going to be on us. Yeah. So thank God the show got bigger in season we got like more not that this means anything but more emmy nominations more it got it just grew from there right and i was like okay now i can relax and you know and, and do this art and lighting and optics are significant parts of the presentation of the show even the most ordinary everyday things the regularness of life is presented in a visually stunning way it's one of the things that i perseverate about over and over again yeah what insights can you share about any discussions or mandates about those aspects of the show, tone, lighting, vibe? Well, it was really a perfect storm of incredibly talented people. I mean, obviously starting with David, who had a crystal clear vision of what the show looked like, what every prop, what every set looked like, you know, from you know top to bottom. There's literally nothing happened by accident on that show. Uh, Thank you for saying that, because yeah. we been saying over and over again that I, I see everything on the frame yeah. as intentional. Absolutely. We, before the cameras would roll, one of the writer-producers, if not David himself, would come in and walk through the set, literally look at the table, look at that. Why is that there? Why is that picture there? It's too much. Pull this back. You know, working in conjunction with our production designer, Bob Shaw, who is incredibly talented. Uh, so, you know, we would, we would walk the set, make sure it looked right. You know, again, like so many things like you know, in TV, when I said I put quotes, I'm doing air quotes here, TV, like network TV, you know, a pile of garbage looks too clean. It's all, you know, if you look at the garbage, it's all clearly like recycled boxes. It's not real shitty, smelly garbage. If we see garbage on the Sprouts, it's really shitty and smelly. You know, when we dump that garbage truck of uh, shit outside the deli, and that, mm. that's something that happened in my real life. You know, David was really upset at first that the garbage looked too clean. And we, I think we augmented that with, you know, uh, VFX. Uh, stuff like that, you know, like, like, you know, I remember walking through Meadows College apartment, you know, it looked, I remember having a conversation with Bob Shaw at the time saying, it looks too, it's too cutesy, it's too designed, it's too 
looks like something you'd see on TV. A set. A set, yeah. It looks too much like a set. And he's like, oh, yeah, you're right. So we pulled that back, you know, stuff like that, you know. Just make it look real. You know, I always used to drive us crazy, too, even, you know, and not to single out wardrobe, but, you know, on a set, you know, like very often before you'll roll, the wardrobe people come out and and, and you know, tape with a sticky tape and take uh, lint rollers. Lint Thank roller. you. <laughs> Again, my brain is not quite working. I'm still on my second cup of coffee. A lint roller. Oh, that guy's got lint on him. It's like, fuck, who cares? People have lint on them in life. That's part of it. Just get off the set. Leave it. His hair's messed up. Fine, your hair's messed up. That's what people, mm. that's what who we are. Mm. So that sort of stuff. So the, just from that level, then you go into, okay, now you've got incredibly talented uh, directors of photography, Phil Abraham uh, and Alex Sakharov, who later went on to become huge directors. Those guys were unbelievable in terms of you know, what things looked like. You know, add to that, you know, the incredible wardrobe, Juliet Polksa, that stuff. Again, Bob Shaw, uh, the, all the people who worked on the set. Uh, then the, you know, the directorial choices themselves, you know, everybody from Tim Van Patten to Alan Coulter to David to John Patterson, uh, just, you know, amazing choices and always different, you know, never trying to make it look like, you know, it wasn't just like a wide shot and a close up and a medium shot and close up and then turn around. It was always try to make it, you know, there were a few rules, you know, uh, the camera never moved in therapy. Mm-hmm. Therapy was always very static. The episode you directed, it did move though. Did it? Yeah. Oh shit. I hope David doesn't, <laughs> I hope David's not listening to this. I How so? It was another therapy session. I think it was... Either her talking to Elliot. Uh huh. So I don't know if the mandate applied to we, all the ma- therapy Tony, sessions. No, I think it just applied to Tony and Melfi. Okay. Yeah. So okay, I'm off the hook. <laughs> um, I have to go back and rewatch that. But yeah, so the, you know, the, there were very few hard and fast rules, but basically, it you know anything went outside of the therapy office, mm-hmm. outside of the uh, therapy sessions. So uh, you know, again, it was it was really a you know a, a team effort of again really talented people all working in concert and then supervised by David. And again, every single thing it, it was a choice, and certainly with the script too. I mean, w- w- syllable for syllable, you can read the scripts, and you know there is no ad living. Love it. Okay, let's jump into some of your episodes. You are personally responsible for, I think, 25, and I think you directed one of them as well. Yeah. I'm going to pick my spots here. I'll set it up with a question or thought. Tell me what comes to mind today. Um, I'm going to go in reverse chronological order. Okay. Uh, the second coming, the one where Tony jumps in the pool, hmm. uh, pulls AJ out, screams, what's wrong with you? They lay there together for a moment. I watched it yesterday, and I got chills again as I did the last 17 times I've watched it. Then he comforts him in his lap, juxtaposed that with the Coco Cogliano curb stomp later in the episode. What comes to mind about that episode today and conveying Tony's bipolarity with such nuance? Wow, such a flood of thoughts in my head. Um, Just mentioning the episode just fills me with sadness. Uh, Not only because of the content of the show, because it's so poignant, uh, because I knew on set shooting it that that was my last, more or less my last hurrah as of this is an episode I wrote. I was on set after that, and my very last time was in Vegas shooting something for uh, Tony on the at the Red Rocks with the sunset, but that, that was months later. But this is the last time I was going to be on set with Tim Van Patten, who directed that episode, and so it was already came with poignancy. Then watching... Uh, 
Jim and Robert together doing that stuff in the pool. I mean, it was so heartbreaking. This was before I had kids. So now looking at it and thinking about it through the lens of somebody who has a son who's about to turn 13 and an 11-year-old daughter, it's even more poignant because I, I think now, my, oh, my God, you know, here's a guy who's barely hanging on himself psychologically with his, his, his mental illness and watching a kid suffer like that to the point where the kid attempts suicide. Uh, it, it, it was, it's just, it's so powerful. Robert, uh, Eiler, who's a tremendous actor, uh, really, I mean, had to do that. I mean, they did what you see on screen. Yeah. I remember when we, when we came up with the outline, we all worked on the outline together about the story. And I remember we knew AJ was going to attempt suicide. And it's funny, the outline says when it comes to that scene, AJ attempts suicide, tragic slash comic. And that was my mandate, go off and write that what does that mean he could have tried to shoot himself he could have shot himself in the foot it could have been anything but i kept going back to the pool and the ducks and Mm. oh it's got to be something with that pool that pool meant so much you know if i may the comedy part tony comes home he's sort of like glum something's on his mind Mm -hmm. he sees food laid out on the counter hot Hot dogs yeah and he and his face changes (laughs) he turns into a little boy he gets to take a bite into it and then he hears aj and then that run into the pool, right. it was like a ballet of yeah, yeah, yeah. devastation. Oh, absolutely. And then the cinder block. Yeah, well, dude, yeah, he tried to drown so the cinder block and the rope is too long. Yeah. And then later on, Tony says, yeah, he's so fucking stupid. Thank God he's so fucking stupid. <laughs> he can't even do that right. But thank God, you know. So that was the comic part. He, he, he screws it up and then he realizes the rope's too long. Now I'm just floating in the pool and he's just hanging on to the diving board. So... I knew it was going to be something with the pool. And then, you know, Robert, you know, again, I mean, it's, it's scary. I mean, we had obviously, you know, lifeguards around like way, you know, but he had to go under the water, pull down by a cinder block and do that a bunch of times. And it gets really weird and claustrophobic. It. Yeah, it's, it, it was really, really challenging. And at one point we had Robert do it a bunch of times and we got it. And then he went back to his trailer and uh, he dried off. And then we sent word. We said, uh, we didn't really get it. You got to come out and do it again. And like a trooper, Robert came out and we just got him out to the pool. And as he was about to go in the pool, everybody said, no, we just wanted to give you a round of applause. And the entire crew just broke out into huge applause for Robert. Just saying, man, you fucking, you crushed this. We got it. We just wanted to all say thank you because it was so incredible, you know, what, the, what he did. And then Jim, you know, in terms of jumping in there, I mean, it was real. Jim had to jump in that pool and his full clothes. I don't remember what he was wearing, but it was a suit, shoes, jumped right in like a parent would do and drag Robert up and throw him over. And it was, I don't think there was a cut in that shot and pull him over and the two of them crying together. And there, there were many people, myself included on the crew, welling up watching this, him holding him, hugging him. And it was just so poignant. Later on, you know, the curb stomp, I mean, just that fucking rage again it goes back to being a parent where you think you know i mean you we talked we both have kids you there's not even a a, you couldn't slip a piece of paper in between the time it takes to react if somebody hurt your kid and you're reacting whatever it is you'd walk in front of a train you don't and it's so hardwired you know you can't so you get a guy like tony where he hears like some guy you know mouthed off to his daughter a guy he already doesn't like you know, it's just zero to 90 in, in a nanosecond. And it's just boom, you know, this just goes. And it's a, all the rage and sadness that he channeled into AJ now got channeled into violence against Coco. I don't know if this was intentional in the writing, but I got to say it because this is the sort of OCD acute level that I look at the show. He 
assures Meadow that he's just going to go talk right. to the guy. Yeah. And the curb stomp is very much a metaphor for talking, right? The last yeah. thing yeah, is an mouth, open yeah. mouth on a yep. curb. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, however that came out in your head and, and how you guys outlined it. Um, it's really the most vicious thing, uh, you know, you can do to somebody short of killing them. I and mean, maybe you could kill them doing that. You certainly could kill somebody doing that. But it's it's the most vicious thing. If you, if you want to say punish somebody for, I mean, short of pulling their tongue out, you're saying, you know, about shut your fucking mouth. Let me help you with that. Boom. Mm. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's great. I have to um, give a, a big honorable mention here to Andy Schneider and Diane Froloff, who were writing on the show at that point. Uh, I don't remember which one of them came up with the idea, but wouldn't it be great at therapy later if in the cuff of Tony's pants we see the, one of Coco's teeth? <laughs> and we were like, oh, my God, that's fucking perfect. So that was the Andy and Diane. And that's where, you know, the writers, the writer's room, it, it's like a basketball game. I don't play basketball, but, you know, you go, uh, somebody gives you an amazing assist or sets you up for sure. something. And, you know, I got the benefit of that in my episode. And I get, you know, people, oh, when you came up with that thing. It's like the first thing you said to me, you know, the whole thing about remember when. That wasn't mine. A lot of it is, you know, a ton of it is, you know, obviously. But, you know. Th- that that's we had an amazing writing staff. We'd all help each other or give somebody a line of dialogue or whatever. Like, oh, that's so great, and that's what made the show so special. Part of what made it so special. But that was Andy and Diane. I was like, holy shit, what a great little image. Caveat. Yeah, there's his little <laughs> his tooth and Tony very discreetly <laughs> thinking of uh, sitting in a family therapy. Yeah, I'm thinking of the nail, the fingernail of. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, gosh, I forgot, I forgot her Valentina. name. Valentina. Valentina. Thank you. Walk like a man. Mm-hmm. Um, your directorial debut. Yes. You did everything else on the show. What took you so long to direct? I uh, never aspired to be a director. Uh, I always revered the process and the people who did it. As my, and it's so funny. I mean, directing is is arguably the most important job, although as a writer I'd say that's the most important job. But it's certainly the biggest high-profile job, and you are in charge of, of everything there. Even for TV? Oh, yeah. Yeah, but well, you know, I mean, you know, you're, you're, I mean, the writers are generally in charge, but directing is a huge, huge responsibility. And it's the one job where people, you know, if you said, oh, I want to be a costume designer, and somebody go, oh, have you gone to, you know, school for that? No, no, but I just don't want to do it. Like, well, you're not qualified. Uh, what about, I want to be a camera guy. Oh, you've done that? No, no, no. Well, you can't do that. But to be a director, all you have to do is say, I'm a director. And people go, oh, okay, he's a director. You have to have a point of view. Yeah. And and sometimes not even that. You just have to (laughs) declare yourself a director. And I'm always astounded by people that never directed before, but they're going to do the most important job on the set. So even uh, through the course of the years, people, you know, would come to me, David said, do you want to direct second unit? And I'd always say, no, I I don't know. I don't know how to do that. I don't know what I'm doing. But after years and years of sitting next to the directors and watching and learning, uh, and somebody early on in my career said, you're not going to want to direct until somebody takes a script that you love, that you wrote, and they fuck it up. And that happened to me. Uh, It was a movie I wrote uh, called Get Rich or Die Tryin'. And it was directed 50 by Cent. Yeah, Fifty Cent. It was directed by Jim Sheridan, and I was very unhappy with how that movie turned out. And I'll leave it at that. Very little in that movie bears any relation to the script I wrote. It was com- almost completely changed, and it, it broke my heart because I was really proud of the original script. So it was on the heels of that experience that I came in at the beginning of, I guess, season six A. And we just started the season, and I said, you know what, I, w- I want to direct. It's time. Whoever said that to me is right. I want to I want to direct an episode. So I came in, and I had a big speech ready for David, and I knocked on his office door, and I said, can I talk to you? Yep. What's up? I said, 
I think I'd like to direct. And he went, okay. Uh, he goes, will you write the episode too? I said, yeah, of course. He says, all right, what about episode five? I went, okay. And I was like, holy shit. You threw your speech out <laughs> And I window. said, do you want to hear my reasons why I think I should direct? He said, not really. <laughs> and I said, okay. I love it. You're an over-preparer. Yeah, and yeah. I turned around and I went, and then I walked out and of course I was like, oh, fuck, now I have to do this. So I really overcompensated by, pre- I went crazy preparing. I mean, I knew that script backwards and forwards. I just, everything I could possibly do to get ready. So, you know, we we prepped, we got ready. Day one, it was a conversation in a car between Christopher and Paul, little Paulie. So it was Carl Capitorto and Michael in a car. And we got, it was 7 a.m., we got our first shot off. And I said, okay, action. And I, okay, they said their words, and they finished, and I went, cut. And as soon as I said cut, I went, fuck, I cut too early. I should have let it go on for a couple of seconds. Mm. So I walked up to our camera operator, Billy Coleman, and I said, Billy, I, I think I cut too early. And Billy said, I didn't cut. <laughs> don't worry about it. He goes, I let it go for a couple of seconds, then I cut. And Billy said right then, he said, let me tell you something. He said, look around. He said, you see all these people here, these hundred people on the set? They all love you. You can't fuck this up. All you have to do is sit in that chair and talk to the actors. We are going to get this on film. It's going to be fine. Relax. We got it. We got you back. You're going to be great. And I was like, holy shit. This is what a luxury. I mean, to, to be a first-time director with a crew of friends who I've been working with for five years. And it was so great. And it just freed me up to just talk to the actors and do just make sure I was getting that and not worry about the technical stuff, which I didn't know and still don't know anything about. So it was, it was great. It was an amazing experience. I loved it. I think I did a pretty good job. But it wasn't – what I learned is that I don't really want to be a director. I want to be a writer. I, I'm very happy not getting up at 3 in the morning and being on a freezing cold set somewhere and staying till 1 in the morning. I'm very I'm happy. Getting in that notorious van I've heard so yeah, much Oh, about. yeah, yeah. It's brutal. <laughs> Just even like location scouting or tech scouting. Yeah. It's is what you said an unwritten law or unwritten rule that the camera rolls a little bit longer after cut? Uh, yeah, I think so. Just to just to give yourself a little more time. It's, uh, otherwise, it's just this abrupt cut, and you might yeah. not want you might want it to linger. You a always want more. a little bit so, of yeah, a little bit to play with. Yeah. Remember when? Remember when is the lowest form of conversation? You told me what inspired that line. Do you believe that? Is that personal? A lot of writing is personal. Do you have... I know you haven't gone back and looked at your work. Right. I actually respect that a lot. I haven't gone back and listened to the podcasts that I've produced. Right. I totally see what you're saying. But is that a personal thing? Is that like an axiom that you would share with your children, for example? No, I think it's... I think remember when is a necessary uh, form of ice-breaking with people it's a it's a way to bond with friends uh, i love to reminisce you know i think remember when at the sake of real deeper conversation is is not good uh to avoid actually going deeper but it's it's i think it's it's something we all do and i think it's something we all need to do uh so yeah, you know, I, I i do disagree in that sense like i love reminiscing with friends and my kids love hearing me and my friends reminisce and you know my son and i work out together and he's like tell me just tell me stories about when you were a kid you know and i unfortunately he's not old enough to hear a lot of the fun ones yet you know mm-hmm. i have to edit you know for for, for, for age reasons, yeah. you know but I, as he gets older you know it'll, they'll get crazier and funnier and wilder and he loves it and he you know he loves to talk about stuff that he did with his friends so i, I think remember when is is actually a good thing sidebar uh, yeah. we're both dads would you rather they hear the words in the language from you in the house than learn it someplace else? Are you a proponent of it happening in the home? 
It's funny. Because I'm navigating it with a six-year-old right now. I never, and this is remarkable considering my body of work, and and also including the fact that Wolf of Wall Street, you know, won the dubious distinction of having the most uses of the word fuck than any movie in history. But I think this should be an asterisk there because it was three hours long. So I don't know if at the two-hour mark, if we would have beat Raging Bull or not. But anyway, it's pretty close. But I somehow managed to never curse in front of my children, ever. And... At one point, about a year and a half ago, uh, our son came home from a friend's house, and we had heard through the nanny that my son wrote the word fuck on a something. So I pulled him aside. I said, dude, not a huge deal, but not cool to write that word. I said, you know, find other ways to express yourself. I said, you'd never heard me say that word. He goes, oh, yes, I have. I said, no, you have not. He said, I have. I said, when have you heard me say fuck? He goes, when you and mommy are talking about Donald Trump. <laughs> I, said, I said, well, that's different. You're not in the room. I said, you've made over here, but I've never said it in front of you intentionally. And Donald Trump's a fucking idiot. So uh, I said, so I get a pass. So, uh, and we laughed about that. So now he, that he's 13, he's every once in a while let fly. And, you know, in, in, in answer to your question, like, you know, I want him to, you know, I don't want to be... You know, the dad where it's like, you know, I'm I'm like pretending to be above it all or anything else. Like, I, you know, I wanted to know that I'm a human being, yeah. you know, so I'll say it and, you know, we'll curse. And, you know, he gets it like, you know, and I think 13 year old boys, I'm sure they're notorious for with their friends. I'm sure they curse like sailors. But, uh, you know, I, I know he's going to hear things outside the house. And, you know, one of the things I always tell him is like anything you want to know, I will tell you. We yes. can talk about anything. And I will even introduce topics and saying this is what this means just in case there's confusion let me explain to you what this means because i don't want you under you know i don't want a bunch of 12 year olds on the playground trying to figure out what some weird sexual terminology is i'll tell you what it is yeah and then you so you don't have to ever feel like you don't know what's happening i want him to be above it like when he hears it on the school ground to be like oh i already know that yeah yeah that's the goal yeah exactly lofty goal but yeah the goal nonetheless (laughs) um stage five Mm. The one with Sidney Pollack. Yeah. The line, pristine dialogue. I killed my wife, my aunt too, and then there's a pause, and the mailman, and the line that gets me is, at that that point, point, I had to fully commit. I had to fully commit. (laughs) So pristine. (laughs) What inspired that character, and how did you land on Sidney? You know, just backing into it, we knew... He would be in a federal prison, and we knew, okay, it had to be a federal crime, and that's how it ended up being where he killed the mailman because that would get him in federal prison because the mailman, <laughs> So, which is just an oddball Love thing. It. There you go. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how we ended up. Well, you know, it was somebody that Johnny had to talk to that was smart enough to, to, to get into deep. So, you know, deep conversation with. So we thought, all right, well, what if it's a professional person? What if it's a doctor? I'm, I'm backing into the thought process. I think that was it. In terms of Sidney Pollack, you know, we wanted the guy to have gravitas. And, you know, there were just certain people that had it. And, you know, there was, a, I think, George Ann Walken uh, at the time had a list of people who were very well-known actors or directors who just reached out and said, hey, I would do something on the show if there were ever... An, an opportunity. That's what I was hoping to hear. And he, uh, he was a fan. He was a fan. And we said, oh my God, he'd be perfect for this. So we sent him the script. He, he liked it. I remember uh, the great thing about working with him, one of the great things about working with him is he flew himself in from LA. He was a pilot and he had his own plane. 
and he he got just gotten a new plane and he flew from wherever LA I'm assuming to to New York and part the plane worked for the week and then flew home and he remember, I remember him telling me he learned how to fly the plane uh, on a computer basically there's the program for that particular plane you go in a simulator and he spent 5 hours learning the instruments on a computer never having flown the actual plane before and then the instrument training uh, in the simulator was enough to just go and get behind the wheel of the actual plane and then fly it to New York and land it. Insane. It was amazing. And he was really into, like, he had, you know, this was, like, I don't know what year that was, 2005 maybe. And uh, he, he had, like, all, he was really into his computer and his laptop and he had all these, like, articles and stuff. And I remember just sitting with him. And, of course, you know, Every minute he wasn't working, I was sitting next to him asking him about working with, uh, you know, um, I can imagine Kubrick yeah. and just t- just tell me stories, you know. And he was great, great rock and tour, such a sweet guy. I remember at one point uh, he had to do a scene where he had to change the bed. I remember I was in the hospital once; I had my appendix taken out, and the the nurse changed the sheets while I was still in the bed. And I was like, holy shit, this is something they know how to do. They basically <laughs> roll you over, they pull one side off, they push you the other this side. This is something out. they know how to do. Yeah, like, and I was like, holy Liam shit, Neeson this is like... A particular yeah. set of skills. And I remember that. I was like, that's a, like a little detail that says, oh, this is real. You know, yeah. this this guy is a hospital orderly. And uh, I said this, you know, we were blocking it out on set. And um, God, I, I don't remember who directed that episode. I want to say, was it Alan Coulter? I don't think it was Alan Coulter. And I wrote Alan Taylor, maybe. Alan Taylor. Might have yeah. been Alan Taylor. And I remember we were blogging out on set, and I said to Sydney, you know, while you're doing this monologue, you know, to Johnny Sack, I won't, you know, you need to make the bet. And he's like, I can't do that. And I was like, you're fucking kidding me? I said, you're Sidney Pollack, man. You can do anything. I said, yeah, you can. I said, you know, we got a 20-minute lighting set up. We're going to have somebody come in and teach you how to do this. And then, and then he was like, he kind of took it as a challenge. And he did it, and you look at him on the show. It looks seamless. Oh, you know, seamless. He does it on the show. Yeah. It's like he totally gets it and does it. And I said, you just flew a plane here from a simulator. You could certainly learn how to make a bed with a guy in it. And uh, he did. He was great. So, so cool. You know what's truly brilliant about that scene now that you're you're kind of articulating it? You forget who you're watching. Yeah. And that's, we're talking about TV. Yep. You just said it was a 20-minute lighting setup. Go get it in there. And he, he, yeah. became, he became invisible. Absolutely. He was the character. Yeah. And that's brilliant. Yeah. I love that that 20-minute thing is what triggered that. Same episode. Oh, same episode. This, the ending montage. Phil Leotardo lamenting his legacy at the bar to Butch. Right, yeah. Cue the evidently Chicken Town song. The timing of the, the way the music comes in is like, I, I don't know what you guys were thinking or what was happening, but it was just brilliant. Cut to Chris's baby's baptism. That sequence, the whole sequence just paralyzes you. It paralyzes me. Insights on the song choice and writing that ending, the gravitas of it all, if you will. It ended unlike many Sopranos episodes. Right. There was a there was a buildup, a godfatherly buildup to it. Any particular reason? I wish I remembered. Okay. Uh, working backwards. The you remember mu- the song, though? Yeah. Okay. And, you know, working backward from the music, all the music on the show was was David Chase. Uh, you know, he had a—and uh, Martin Bruce Lee, our music supervisor. David and Martin uh, worked incredibly well in tandem, but David is a— uh, musical encyclopedia. He he remembers every song you ever heard. Uh, he'll pull things out that are like so obscure, and and you never know. It's funny. I learned very early on not to 
write songs in the script like oh with such and such playing on the radio tony drives that's the first thing david will ignore or cross out just save save the ink because it's it ain't happening david will decide what's in there did you ever try uh i made some suggestions over the years i don't even remember if any of them were ever taken uh, I did early on would write songs in and then he just said, just don't, don't bother doing that. I'm going to, you know, fool around with what, but what he did like you to do was, you know, always make sure there's an opportunity for music, for source music. And what that means for people who aren't familiar is we never did score on the show. You don't hear Tony walking down a, you don't see Tony walking down a, a hallway and, and then you hear creepy music to suggest that, oh, there's some danger. We only use music that came from a, an identifiable source. So if there was a car race, radio or a record player or a jukebox or a band that's where the music on the show came from uh and i maybe we may have broken that rule occasionally or ever i don't even know but 99 percent of the time there it was source music so david always would say make sure i have a source somewhere you know to 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 enable me to put music in the show so evidently chicken hound i don't know where he came up with that or why or if it was him or martin but again all the choices for music were were David's. So backing into that, then writing the, uh, I remember writing the Phil Leotardo speech and I remember talking about it uh, initially with David and the whole idea that it, it was probably supposed to have been Leonardo or in, in Phil Leotardo's mind, he create recreated that history that he got fucked over by the, the Metagons, uh, you know, who changed the name. You know, it's funny because in the research I've done about genealogy, that whole myth of like, Oh, the people at Elson just changed their name. Apparently that was largely myth. Apparently that didn't happen a lot or at all. The people come up with the story. Oh, they changed our name to whatever. So Phil, again, you know, his, his memory of it is they they had this noble name from you know Leonardo da Vinci and it became a, a <laughs> their dance tights you know yeah. Leonardo whatever the little girl a little girl corrects him yeah. yeah and I remember having so much fun writing that 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 monologue because he was so angry and so pissed off and he and and Butch Deacon he's sitting there and just Phil going on and I remember being on set watching uh, watching them do it and uh, it was it was just really. So powerful. I knew we had gold, you know, that day just just watching uh, Frank Vincent, you know, perform that. And uh, it was it was really, really powerful. Oh, a Frank Vincent question I heard from somebody. Somebody said about him. uh, I think it was one of the actors in the show that he was a delayed addition to the show because he didn't audition. Frank Vincent doesn't Mm. audition, I believe, was the quote. Is that accurate? Not that I know of. Uh, I think he was a delayed addition to the show because David didn't want to pack the show with cast from Goodfellas. You know, he loved Frank, obviously, and Frank was a huge addition to the show. But early on, uh, we didn't want to have, we already had Michael, we already had Lorraine, Tony Sirico to a lesser degree, you know, but we didn't want to make it like the whole cast of Goodfellas got put on the show. So Frank, I think, was frustrated for many years. He wanted to be on the show. Why not? I mean, you know, every great mom. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And then finally, I think it was season five, we finally, David finally decided to cast him. And I think it was the right time because by that point, the Sopranos became its own thing. Yes. It was well into it being its own thing. So you wouldn't go, oh, another Goodfellas guy. So that was the the rationale and the reasoning I heard. I never heard the audition story. I don't know that he did audition, actually, when when, uh, ultimately, anyway. Someone gave me the Manson lambs right there and said, Uh Frank Vincent doesn't audition. I said, okay. Yeah, well, <laughs> he may not. Yeah, I don't um, think he had to. Mr. and Mrs. John Sacramoni request. Yeah. 
Steve Buscemi directed. Yes. It's the episode where, among other things, Muscle Marinara gets the beatdown. <laughs> Where'd you come up with that name? Uh, when I first moved to L.A. Uh, in 1991, my one of my two dearest friends, Chris Caldovino, who played Billy Leotardo, uh, he... Uh, he and I lived together with another guy, and we pretty much ate every single meal every day at Norm's on La Cienega Boulevard. We ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner there. It was cheaper than eating at home. And we'd eat there every night, and, and there, were, there were regulars there. And there was this cast of characters that were always there, and we all had nicknames for all of them. And there was this one guy who drove a Corvette, this big muscle-bound Italian guy, who'd pull up in his convertible Corvette, and he would come in, and he would order two chicken dinners with just vegetables. <laughs> and, then we, and I just nicknamed him Muscles Marinara, because he was an Italian guy with big muscles. And I just sort of filed that away, and I said, oh, here's Muscles Marinara. Or I'd be at Norm's, anybody, they yeah, have Muscles Marinara's here, or, you know, the, whatever, the Crypt Keeper. There's all kinds of different people who ate there that we had nicknames for. And it just got filed away. And then finally, you know, we did this episode with this, this kid who was this big muscle-bound guy, and I was like, oh, shit. That's Muscles Marinara on the show. So Tony just, you know, called him that. It's one of the most overworked social media memes for The Sopranos still. Like, Muscles Marinara over here. Is that right? Yeah, it's still, it is. <laughs> I'm, I, I, have, I am not on any social media. No, I know. So yeah. I don't know. But I, it, is one of the, know. it is one of the things from the show that has uh, found a way into, uh, the, into the culture. I that use it with my son happy. all the time. That's so funny. When my son eats pasta with no meatballs, <laughs> it's nothing. But when he eats it with the meatballs, it's Muscles Marinara <laughs> over here. So my <laughs> son, my so six year old says he doesn't know the context uh, I but love that. he calls his pasta muscles marinara that is so great that makes me very happy you were paired up with steve more than once on the show yeah was that by design no uh but it was a very happy coincidence a lot of times uh and and this is what's happened going back to the first time this is how i met steve he was uh he directed pine barrens that was in season two we season three episode 11 that was season three yeah Oh, yeah, of course. I, it was my second season yeah. on the show. Uh, thank you. We, our director slots are filled well in advance of shooting and even knowing what episode it's, what the episode is going to be because people schedule. So we know, we said, okay, this is the shooting schedule. So we're going to shoot episode one, uh, let's say between January 1st and January 15th, and then episode two, et cetera, all throughout whatever the shooting schedule is. So that was episode 11 of season three. So and again, to have people put their schedules locked in. We said, okay, well, Steve Buscemi is going to direct whatever episode 11 is, and that's going to be shot, I think we shot that in January 2000 or 2001. And so well in advance of knowing what that even was going to be, we knew whatever it was, Steve Buscemi was going to direct it. As it turned out, it was Pine Barrens, which I, I wrote the script for, and Tim Webb Hatton and I came up with the story, and uh, Steve Steve directed it. And then originally it was supposed to be this, the guy's lost in the woods. And then there was this massive blizzard and it was the guy's lost in the snow in the woods. And people were like, oh, they got Steve Buscemi because it's like Fargo. But <laughs> it had nothing to do with Fargo. It, it had nothing to do with complete sheer coincidence. But that's how I met Steve Buscemi, of whom I had been a huge fan. Uh, I've seen everything the guy had ever done. From I remember I saw him in In the Soup with uh, Seymour Cassell. And I was like, who is this guy? He's great. He's hilarious. And I just had watched Steve through the years and then of course later on went on to work with him on uh on boardwalk empire but as the seasons progressed and steve came back to direct again i guess a lot of it was i had written so many episodes that the odds were 
he might get an episode that I wrote, but I think he directed three of mine or maybe four. Definitely three or four. Definitely, definitely three. three. Definitely three. Yeah, and it was great. It was so much fun working with him. He's such a talented director, and, and we became, of course, very good friends uh, you obviously as a result. Had, he, you had no sort of sense that he was nucky at that point, right? This no. This way pre-pre-nucky. Yeah, but while I was on The Sopranos, I saw him in a production of uh, a Bertolt Brecht play called The Resistible Rise of Arturo Ui where he played a 1920s, 30s era gangster. And I think it was Al Pacino was in it. And I got to see Steve in a 1920s gangster suit. And I think he, if I'm remembering correctly, he had like a a stiff leg or something, a gimpy leg as they would call it. And I remember looking and saying, wow, he looks really cool in those clothes. Just filed it away. And then years later, when we were casting Boardwalk Empire, Martin Scorsese and I were like just bouncing around ideas. And Marty said, well you know, forget about what the real guy looks like, just who are actors we love. And I think Steve was the first person I said, well, I love Steve Buscemi. And Marty's like, oh, he's great. Who else? And we bounced around ideas. And then a couple of days later, Marty called me up and said, I can't stop thinking about Buscemi for this. And I said, I can't either. Let's do it. And uh, we called HBO and, you know, they were like, oh, my God, how interesting. What an interesting idea. And I also think I had already seen Steve in those clothes. Like, I already knew what he would look like. I said, this, he's going to look great. And that was that was basically it. It's amazing how in life, like, things that you never assume yeah. would have relevance later. They Absolutely. file it away yep. and it comes back. Yep. Yeah. Um, he also did a really great digital short uh, on, on the web. It was an AOL digital thing where it's called Conversations on a Park Bench Oh, or yeah, 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 yeah. It was so, it was so great. great. It, really you know, funny. It died on the vine. Yep. But like, yeah, really only funny. Only he could, could do that. Yeah. And yeah. it worked. Yeah. It was fun. Members only. The one where Eugene Pontecorvo hangs himself. Yeah. And Junior shoots Tony. Mm. You've said before that David was done with the show after season five. Mm-hmm. There was a big powwow. And you executed a successful filibuster mm-hmm. to sort of breathe life into one last season. Yeah. Was Tony getting shot decided then, or how did that story point originate and evolve? David disagrees with me on this, but I swear he at one point had pitched the end of the series that Uncle Junior shoots Tony, and we go out on Tony on the kitchen floor trying to reach for the phone and that's how the series ends mm. david says no absolutely not that's not true and i swear he said it no i, I don't know what the reality is let's give it to david because it's his show but i swear he said that at one point uh so junior shooting tony was always a possibility it was always thrown out there as something that would happen on the show uh the filibuster thing is absolutely right and you know part of it was i want i did think we weren't done I did sincerely think we weren't done, but also from a completely mercenary perspective, I was finally at the point in my career with HBO where I was looking at a very big payday if I were to continue. and Something called an overall deal where I was going to be finally making big money. And the idea of ending the show was going to kill my overall deal. So we got called into the office on a Sunday, which was really rare. We never worked weekends on that show. We never worked. The writer's room never worked past 7 7 p.m. We were done. You know, if you were shooting, that was a different thing. You'd be on set. But for the most part, you know, it was a very civilized working environment. So to get called in on a (laughs) Sunday was very odd. So David said, I want to talk to you, Robin and Mitch, you know, on Sunday. And we showed up at 10 a.m. at at Silver Cup Studios on a Sunday. And we brought bagels and we sat there. And he was like, what's, you know, what's happening? And David said, I think I'm done. 
And I went into panic mode. It was completely selfish. And I thought, oh, fuck, there goes my deal. I'm done. You know, I'm finally going to make money and this is over. And, and you know, part two is we're not going to have the Sopranos. Why did you need one more season to get the overall deal done? Because the, the deal was going to continue for the next year. Okay. But if we were done with the show, there's no point in giving me this big deal. Gotcha. So I was like, shit, you know, gotcha. all that, you know, money was out the window. So, again, this sounds horribly mercenary, but it's the truth. I'm only human. So uh, I was like, fuck. And and I really did want, truly wanted to continue the show. So I was like, you know, I, and Dave was like, I'm exhausted. I can't keep up this pace, et cetera, et cetera. So we ch- I tried everything. I was like literally there for hours. And it was, I, I don't know what part of year, but I remember it being hot. The air conditioning was off. It was a Sunday. And sitting there and just pitching on my Well, what about this? What about it? Nothing was working. It's fucking goes, look, if you can't, I have to make the, up my mind by tonight. And if I can't decide, you know, that's it. You know, they're basically the options are up, et cetera, or whatever. And uh, I said, finally, it got to the point. I said, Dave, look, if you're tired, here's the deal. I said, there's 10, 10 years between Star Wars movies at that point. I said, we're not going to lose the audience. If you need a break, take a year off. Come back a year from now. It'll take us a year to shoot a show. The show can be off the air for 18 months, two years. You think people aren't going to come back to watch it? He, he goes, I said, but they'll come back for fucking Star Wars movies. Of course they're going to come back. I said, the other thing is you take a couple of years off. Our characters can be anywhere when we come back. I said, you know, Meadow could be in college. Janice could have a kid. This, and he went, that's interesting. And then I was like, oh, shit, I have a way in. And I just kept hammering him. I remember stood up. I started pacing the floor. What about this? Come back. Chris has a mustache. Inexplicably. He's like, what does that mean? I don't know what it means, but it could be anything. Life. Life changes. And you go, holy shit, what happened? And then suddenly he started going, yeah, yeah. And by the end of it, he was like, oh, yeah, I get it. I see it now. You're right. I'm going to take a year off. I'm going to go go to France. Relax. We're going to come back and get into it. And boom. And I walked out of there like, oh, thank God. <laughs> and then we came back and we did, I don't know how many more episodes, 18 more. Mm-hmm. And then by that point, when we got to the end, David said, I think, I think we're done. And I said, I, I can't disagree. I said, I, I th- I said, here's the deal for me. If you said to me right now, we're going to sign on for three more years, I'd say, where do I sign? That said, I think we're done. I, I don't know that there's a lot more to say about Tony Soprano that we haven't already said. Uh, but I'll, I'm here with you till the end, or if you want to wrap it up, I think we should. I think I think we're ready to go. Was the decision for a 6A and a 6B at your level, or was it an HBO thing? That was an HBO David thing. Okay. I, I think it had to do with contracts or options or whatever. I'm not really, honestly don't know. Long-term parking. Mm. Penultimate episode of season five, which the final episode is actually all due respect, and that was the basis on upon which I wrote a letter to David Chase that Michael Imperioli hand-delivered. And I read how you kind of like, when you met Martin Scorsese for the first time, you were like pacing around in circles before you got into his house. <laughs> I literally labored over this letter for the better part of a month. And I, uh-huh. I asked Michael if he would edit it for me to make sure it was kosher. Yeah, He writes me back. It's fine. It's great. I said, really? Like not even a comma? Like right. not even a, like <laughs> not even an omit needless word situation? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, this season five, this episode and all due respect are sort of what catapulted me into this vortex of never being able to shake the Sopranos, if you will. Wow. The one where Aid obviously tells Christopher she's been cooperating with the feds. The scene that won both Drea and Michael Emmys reflect on this episode, the perfect title and their performances. Hmm. I was not originally slated to write this episode. Uh, in the casual way, we would say, you know, you write this, you write that. It was sort of like I had—I ri- don't know what I had written right before it, but in the 
way things fell, uh, I think originally Robin and Mitch were kind of up next to write this episode. But I just felt really, really strongly about this. And I think it's the first and only time I ever did this in the writer's room. We talked about this is the episode where it's he's going to get killed. And I went, I'm writing this episode. And every, there's kind of like silence. And I said, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't care who's up next or whatever. I'm writing this. And everybody just was like, okay, fine. You know, what made take you feel so strongly about it? I just, I just knew in my heart this was mine. I don't really know. I just... I just, I don't know. I just wanted it. And uh, again, it's, it was kind of douchey to just sort of plant my flag in, in that and just say I'm writing it and kind of challenging everyone else. And everyone's like, all right, fine, write it, write it. So we, I had been on, actually, I think I had been on set producing another episode while much of that outline was written by David and Robin and Mitch. And probably, I guess at that point, Andy and Diane might have been there too. Uh, I don't remember, honestly, but I remember, you know, we, we finalized the outline, then I went off to write it. And I had two weeks to write, you know, the first draft, as was often the case. I'm a big procrastinator, as many writers are. I think deadlines are essential. I, I love having a deadline. If you said to me, you have six weeks to write this, I will take every bit of that six weeks. You have, you have six days, I will take six days. So 95% of writing is thinking or not writing there's you know yeah what I mean? like, that sounds that sounds accurate it yeah. certainly is for me you know and it's funny my wife you know over the years you know she's a producer so she understands the process too but she even understands when i'm not writing i'm actually still writing if i'm sitting in my office throwing a ball up in the air and i'm i'm actually working or if we're driving and i'm i miss an exit it's because i'm thinking about my script Great you know analogy. i'm always working so for long-term parking uh you know my my Procrastinate. I learned to control my procrastination or use it to my benefit over the years. Instead of just so, okay, I have two weeks. Instead of sitting for the first three days in front of my computer, pulling what little hair I have out, and and telling myself what an asshole I am, I know I'm not going to do anything for the first three days. So I wouldn't punish myself. I'll go play tennis. I'll go read. I'll go to the movies. It's like it's nothing's going to happen for the first three days. I'm just gestating. So I don't. Instead of again torturing myself, I'll just go and you know do something else, do something fun or productive. With the long-term parking, for some reason, I think part of it was because I was such an asshole about saying, this is my episode, I couldn't get started. So the three days came and went, and I said, all right, I'm going to start on day four. And day four came and went, and then day five, and I couldn't get going. And I'd start to write, and I couldn't make a decision. Is it this? Is it that? I couldn't do it. I said, all right, well, I can, I can write an episode in a week. And would not recommend it, but I can do it. And it got to the point where then I had literally three days to go. And there was no, you could not call David and say, I need more time. He would say, no, nope, I need it on Monday. I'm not done. I don't give a fuck. I need it on Monday. And I have a pretty strong work ethic where I don't, I don't fuck around with that either. Because, you know, in my thing and what I would tell my writers on, on shows that I created, there were 150 people waiting to do your, their job based on you doing your job. Mm. You're holding up an entire crew who, who are paralyzed because you can't turn in your script. So do your fucking job and turn it in. And that's what you get from David. So I knew there was no, daddy wasn't going to let you take more time. So it got to the point where I procrastinated to the point where I had three days to go and I was in a fucking panic and I remember walking around Manhattan at night at like midnight just going, oh, what the fuck are you doing? I'd never been in this position before. And I came home and I just said, sit down and write this fucking script. And I, I wrote it in three days of, you know, 18, 19 hour days, just sat down. I don't even think I proofread it and I sent it in and, you know, the reaction, I think the initial reaction was from Eileen Landers who read it immediately said, oh my God, we could just shoot this. And David agreed and felt the same way. So I don't even know that I did a 
second draft of it. I mean, that was the script and that was the thing we shot and it just kind of poured out of me. The visceral. Yeah. I love the decision to just go up. Yeah. Two Tonys, season five, episode one, the one with the bear, loaded with comedy. There's two sound bites that I just love. I can't get enough of. What are you trying to prove you independent? This isn't a little house on a fucking prairie. Those things are dangerous. The cadence <laughs> and the timing, you know, because Tony's trying to like justify his value to Carmela. <laughs> and I, I kind of see where this comes from now that I know your backstory about being a sitcom writer. Right. That's very... It has elements of that right there. I get it. it I'm, I'm seeing that picture now, and it's giving me, it's filling my heart up. Um, and then the other line in the kitchen, the banter between Carmela and Tony, where he's cutting her short on the stipend or whatever it is. <laughs> and the bill for one of the tutors, Carmela says, are you worried he's going to soak you for an extra pencil? And then Tony follows it up with, oh, rim shot. What I think, Tony, is you're trying to make my life now as hard on me financially as possible. Oh, it should be easy. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> These are like vignettes, like out of like a lot of people in your generation have talked. Michael Imperioli, I mentioned, I asked him what, what was a show that kind of he could look back to the way that I look at this show. And he mentioned The Honeymooners. Mm. You've mentioned The Honeymooners. Yeah. Many, many people have mentioned it. These are moments like that for me, equivalents. Right. My question, long-winded. It's the first season premiere where we don't see Tony walk down the driveway to pick up the paper because he's not there. He doesn't live there anymore. Talk about the discussions to replace him with a bear. And then, if you can, abstractly, talk about the things you want to see and convey in a season premiere. The bear idea was something we had on the board, sort of the idea board, for for several seasons. Uh, a lot of articles uh, coming out of New Jersey talked about bears sort of uh, terrorizing these suburban homes. I mean, of course, you know, these homes are built in, in wooded areas where the bears live. So, of course, the bears come down out of the woods if they're hungry and rummage through garbage cans and terrorize the neighborhood. And we always thought, God, that would be really – it's just a little interesting thing if that ever happened to Tony. It was just sort of one of the things on the board that we thought, oh, maybe one day that's a potential story idea. We never could work it in. So we had an interesting opportunity coming back in season five where Tony and Carmelo were separated. You know, season four ended with the two of them in white, white caps, caps, you know, with the separation. So – uh, we come back into season five, continuing that storyline where Tony is not living at home with Carmela and the kids. And somebody came up with the idea that, oh, wow, this would be an interesting time for the bear to come because Tony's not there to protect his family. And we also realized, oh, OK, if Tony's separated, he also now what's one of the first things he would do is hit on Melfi again because technically he's not married. So he can he can go there. So at some point along the line, we realized that there are two bears here terrorizing people there's an actual bear terrorizing carmella and there's tony the bear terrorizing melfi and that sort of gave rise to the idea of there's two tonys wonderful one's a bear one's the actual guy and both of these women have <laughs> bears coming sniffing around their houses and terrorizing them so it's an interesting idea so david and i wrote that episode together uh he took the Tony Melfi storyline and I took the bear storyline. I was going to say, can you talk about what that looks like when you write an episode together with David Chase? Like, what is the... How do you divide and conquer? We take the outline and go, you take scenes one, four, five, seven, nine, you know, the the, the storyline that, that you're going to do and he took the other one. Got it. We go off separately, write our 
scripts, write our portions of the scenes, put it together, and then one of us would take it and just make sure it smoothly looked like an episode. Uh, I was uh, always in charge of of a lot of times in charge of editing a script down like if a screen scene a script came in long i would do something called the winterization process which i still do to this day i Winter can take is coming basically i can take a script that's 65 pages and make it 58 pages and you wouldn't know that i changed the word i mean i'm really a really good editor and that's the winterization process this needs to be winterized and i've done that all throughout my career so i do that on the sopranos too i would take it and a lot of it is you know changing words in stage direction, just shortening things up, but you don't feel like you're losing anything. So I, I would do that, but that's neither here nor there. So anyway, we do our, our, our separate uh, parts and put it together. So uh, it just worked out so well. Like Again, for a story idea, the bear thing that we were sitting on for three or four years, like, oh man, what a perfect opportunity this was. To, now Tony's feeling guilty, like his family's being terrorized by a bear and he's not there and the whole Melfi thing. In terms of the season premiere thing, uh, you know, I, I always knew we were going to see it in front of an audience. We were incredibly lucky enough to have these huge premiere parties very often at Radio City Music Hall in New York, which is just incredible. It's one of the iconic theaters in the, in America, uh, this incredible Art Deco movie house of theater. Uh, and we would have our season premiere of our show there. So I knew you were going to have thousands of people watching this like a movie. So every year, you know, we tried to make sure that we let off with a bang, that, you know, the first episode was going to be killer, you know. So Two Tonys, you know, was was going to be one of those. So, you know, for me, you know, a lot of it is, you know, reintroducing the series mm. to to an audience, you know, setting up whatever the conflicts are for the season to come and just sort of reminding people you know, how, uh, what this world looks like. You know, one of the most fun things for me in those premieres would, you know, the lights would go down and the speeches were all made and the the music, the theme music would start playing. Mm. And just at the sound of the music, the whole audience would break out into applause. And it was such a, I'd get chills, like, going, holy shit. And the fun thing as a writer or a director or an actor is like, you know, you write something and you know there's a joke, for example, and you know, oh, the joke's coming. And boom, boom, here it is, boom, and thousands of people laugh at the same time. And you go, wow, we made that happen. You know, we wrote, I knew this, it's like, play, you know, it's like being any kind of performer. I know when I say this line, people are going to laugh, or here it comes, people, thousands of people gasp at the same time. And you made that happen. You manipulated that. It's amazing. As a storyteller, it's such a great feeling. Uh, you mentioned Star Wars, so I'm going to tie this all back together. Uh, the feeling that people get when they see the Lucasfilm and then the the sound of the music, same thing with The Sopranos. It's the same sort of like centering moment. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Put and your it, phone down. Absolutely. And it, watch what you're about yeah, to see. Yeah, and, it, and it, 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 it feels like that's part of the show. You have to watch the opening credits to lead you into the show. You can't fast forward through that. No. The music, absolutely, exactly what you just said. It's time to watch The Sopranos. It's time to settle in. You're in this world. It's a beautiful way of introducing you to Tony, New Jersey, coming from the city to home and, okay, settle down and boom, now here's the story. Yeah. It's, it's really amazing. Well, the level of detail in the opening credits, it's a testament to how everything is so intentional, right? Yeah, I mean, have you heard the story of the opening credits? I uh, know that Alan Coulter shot it with David with, and they were in a car. Yeah, and Phil, I think Phil Abraham might have been with them. Yeah, the three of them sat in the back seat. And uh, I don't even know if David was in the car, actually. I think it was, it was the, they just drove around New Jersey. David, I think kind of late in the game, I think HBO said, what's the opening credits? And David hadn't really given it much thought. And he was like, all right, well, why don't you just take Jim and 
drive and shoot from the tunnel all to New Jersey. And they were out for a couple of hours and edited it together, put that song on there. And it's like one of the iconic the song openings. I, I heard that he was working here in L.A. and he was listening to Morning Becomes Eclectic on KCRW. And he heard that song there. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of that legend. Well, that's a great example of <laughs> how David works musically, where he'll hear something once or twice. And uh, we opened... Um, I think members only opened with uh, it was like not narrated by William Burroughs, yes. and that was a song David heard on I think you know again NPR in he said he was cleaning out his garage in 1982, heard that song one time, and then when we were coming up with the beginning of that episode, there was a montage coming back into six A of where everybody is and mm. Janice with the baby and Uncle Jerry. and he said there was a song I heard I don't even know who did something with William Burroughs and we had to do a little research to find it and then that became the opening for uh, somehow in the script the words summoned that song yep, in his mind yeah absolutely I love that yeah just a comment on Eloise just a couple of great lines with uh, Carmine and his son. Uh, he gets off the golf cart. You put your sunblock on. That is something that I say to my son now in the same way that Carmine says it's a little Carmine. Yeah. Um, very allegorical. Again, the malaprops. Yeah. You were just like firing them away like a f- machine gun clip on this episode. Yep. And then it's the one, it's the first time we hear the Soprano family be described as a glorified crew. Right. Where did that turn of phrase come from? You know, I think the, the, Part of the genius of creating Tony and that family is that they're they're not at the top of the food chain. Right. They're they're kind of low level, you know. Even though as much as you know, we as an audience revere Tony. They oh, he's this big mobster. From a, from the New York perspective, they ain't shit. You know, they're this Jersey family, little Jersey crew. Yeah. So from to hear it, you know, from the perspective of a guy like Carmine Lupertazzi, they they are just a, you know, they're not really a family. They are just a, you know, exactly that. They're just a glorified crew. You know, Tony's mind, I, you know, who knows where he thinks he is on the food chain. But New York is New York, and you know, North Jersey is North Jersey. It's yeah. a whole whole different thing. You know, talking about uh, Carmine uh, Junior, little Carmine. Uh, you know, Ray Abruzzo was an actor. I first met through Frank Renzulli. Frank wrote an episode of a show called Pros and Cons, uh, where it was James Earl Jones and Richard Crenna, I guess were old, older detectives or something. And they had to, I don't know what the storyline was, but uh, basically Frank's episode was about a comic, a comedian who was a very uh, hard-edged comic, uh, you kind of like an Andrew Dice Clay type thing, who's really basically a version of Frank. You know, he'd done stand-up and acted for a while, too. And anyway, Ray Abruzzo played in that episode a version of Frank Renzulli as a stand-up comedian. And I met Ray through Frank and loved him and just one of the sweetest, nicest guys in the world. I don't yeah. know if you interviewed yeah, him. Yeah, he's, he's here. great. And uh, when it came time for to uh, cast Little Carmine, uh, I think Ray was one of the few people who auditioned for us on tape uh, from L.A., and uh, he just, he cracked us up. I mean, just reading those malaprops and he just killed us. And I think he even added a few of his own. Yeah. And he was, it was just hilarious. And he was just, yeah, just such a, an incredible actor and joy to work with. And I remember, shoot, that was the first day he worked on that golf course. Uh, no, actually, you know what? The first day he worked was in Florida. Yes. With Beansy. With I remember yeah. I was down there. We shot that there. And that was the first day he worked. And uh, uh, I remember he had to smoke cigars. And he's like, oh, my God, I, I'm not a cigar smoker. But he he powered through it but he mentioned that that particular scene there was a note to him to make tony wait 
light the cigar, look at the cigar, turn the cigar, uh-huh. and make Tony be like, the fuck is this guy? <laughs> and and that was so powerful because right. you act, he sold it. And yeah, it was yeah, like, because yeah. you're wondering the same thing. And yeah, that yeah. was what he remembered from that yeah. shoot. It was yep. a great story. The strong silent type. There's a scene with Tony and Svetlana. A lot of the stuff I'm asking you is a little bit deep cuts, if mm-hmm. you will. The stuff that has stayed with me, I guess, is, is kind of the overarching theme here. There's a scene with Tony and Svetlana. Her line, people are people. It's so simple, but so contextually powerful. Any insights on her character, um, that moment, and how it either propelled Tony forward or set him back. She had a power over him, unlike few women in the show. Mm. She was the centerpiece of his argument with Carmela in white caps. Mm-hmm. Um, just reflect on on that moment and that line. That was the portion of the episode written by Robin and Mitch. Okay. Uh, I wrote the Christopher intervention storyline. Which I have a question about as well. So that, in terms of that, you know, I, I would defer to them. I okay. don't know if you've interviewed them or I, not. You talked to Robin. Yeah, that's a that's a Robin question. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Svetlana was a, it was a, it was a great character. I mean, yeah. just such an interesting, again, a, a woman with such a powerful hold on Tony. And I think, uh, I think her... The juxtaposition between her frailty and her strength was something that was just just really compelling for him. Let me jump to the intervention, same yeah. episode, where Christopher takes on everybody in the room. Tony's perseverating about the dead Cosette instead of helping to rehabilitate Chris. <laughs> the line in Jim's delivery of it, that's because I know what it's like to lose a pet. His <laughs> emphasis on the pet. Um, how rewarding was it as a writer to let Chris have this moment where he could just call everybody out on their own bullshit? It's great. I mean, it's it was, you know, that scene was based on something that really happened to me uh, with someone in my life who who uh, I had to stage an intervention with. So I was Tony in that scene. Uh, I mm. And a lot of what was said was verbatim. Uh, you know, your type A personality, the way you fucking eat, you know, you're the one, you know, that kind of stuff. And I remember even saying, this isn't about my fucking diet, this is about you and drugs and et cetera. Et cetera. And it ended kind of in, in a, you know, uh, a physical altercation. altercation. And so it was very easy to write. I was just like, oh, oh yeah, and then he said that, and then I said this, and I said that. The other stuff, you know, in terms of, well, you know, Silvio say, I came in and your hair was in the toilet, you know, that was all just sort of riffing. Paulie. Paul, I don't write. I don't yeah, write nothing down. Exactly, and that's exactly you know. You go okay. What? Who are these people? Yeah, Paul, Paul. He doesn't put anything in writing. He's smart enough to not leave a paper trail. That's where he's coming from. You know, Silvio. And you know, and again, it's it's very easy. You know, if you're get, you're getting criticized by these fucking guys. Yes, Silvio. You're gonna talk about me. How many fucking strippers do you bang? And Paulie and you, Tony. You fucking. You're gonna drop dead and all this shit. You know, it's it, it was very. It, I think I probably wrote that scene very quickly yeah uh and and it was just again easy you know uh, again a lot of it was just memorization um mergers and acquisitions season four episode eight at the end it's tony and carmella in the kitchen after he finds a fingernail valentina's fingernail on his nightstand that she ostensibly put there carmella asks you sure there's nothing you want to talk about she does this twice her words are like a cudgel Talk about Edie's simultaneous restraint and audacity. She is, uh, Edie is is just uh, magic. I mean, she is unbelievably talented, has such weight to her, even though she's physically 
small, but so in control of Carmella, and yet at the same time, as many characters on the show pointed out, like, what the fuck are you doing with this guy? You know, why are you still here? You know, uh, one of the, when I think of Edie and, and how incredibly talented she is, I always flash back to Whitecaps being on set uh, when she and Jim did that unbelievable scene. Edie and I were in a conversation about her dog or talking about dogs w- while she was shooting that, wh- literally while they were shooting that scene. And she and Jim had wildly different work styles. Edie's the type of actress who can turn it on and turn it off like a water spigot. She would do that scene. They do a take of that scene. And I remember John Patterson shooting. And it was a very tight quarters on set. We shot it at Silver Cup. The two of them would go at each other screaming, crying. And Tony would put his fist through the wall an inch from Edie's head. And we'd say, okay, cut. Jim would go to his corner like a fighter, sit there snorting and huffing and puffing and getting ready for the next scene. And Edie would come back to me and say, so anyway, my dog... And then we talk about the dog, and then they say, okay, Edie, we're ready for you. She's like, excuse me. And she'd turn it on again and do that scene and fight with Jim and scream and cry and come back again and say, so yeah, so anyway, we're at the park and the dog is fetching a ball. And it was just remarkable. That How somebody, long was her excuse me? Literally seconds. Like I mean, literally switch. like turn it on and go and get to that level. And Jim stayed at that level at the whole time, even off camera. And Edie would just go down, up, down, up, down, and make it look effortless. And so all of her... And I'm sure that, I mean, of course, there's enormous work behind this, but you never saw it. She never complained about it. She just did it. And it was just, again, we're just remarkable to watch somebody, you know, just like a professional athlete, excuse me. And then they did run, you know, 90 <laughs> miles an hour yeah. and come back and they're not even breathing heavy. Watching too much television. Mm. One of my favorite moments of the entire series, the final scene with Zellman. Uh, the emotional swing of Tony. Oh, yeah. All the girls in North Jersey, you had to fuck this one. With added emphasis, there's a little bit of a pause, a little bit of a cadence, and he says, go ahead, cry like a bitch. The off-kilter camera, all of it, and the statue that is Irina in that moment. Deconstruct that moment and what led up to it for Tony. There was a lot of conversation in the room about how he would handle that, that idea. That, uh, you know, when we came across the story, like, oh, what if Zellman is dating Arena? And right away, you know, having grown up where I grew up, I I said, this is the problem. <laughs> Whatever Tony says, this is not good. And it's going to end with Zellman getting his ass beat. And I remember, you know, particularly Robin pushed back on that. I said, well, it doesn't make any sense. You know, they moved on. They're adults. I said, yeah, I know they're adults, but he's Tony. He's a gangster. And it's it basically the idea, the whole idea of how this goes, it comes right from that very, that, that line. Of all the girls in North Jersey, you had to fuck my ex-girlfriend. That's what Tony's thinking. There's nobody, all thousands of women, you had to pick. What does that mean? You're, you're basically, you know, pissing in my territory mm-hmm. and, and to be very crass about Use it. That's how analogy. he's thinking. You know, like, why the fuck are you coming sniffing around my girlfriend, even though we're done. And I said, I don't care what Tony says because he's trying to be an evolved, woke male, even though wokeness didn't exist back in whenever we wrote that. (laughs) As much as he wants to be rational, back somewhere in his head is this motherfucker 
fucked my girlfriend. And I don't care how close they are, et cetera. He's always going to harbor that resentment. And then the question, and, and again, it was like literally like a f- screaming match in the writer's room. That's crazy. I said, I'm telling you. And not only is it going to end with a beat that's going to be. It wasn't obvious? It's, well, it was to me. Yeah. Uh, you know, and David, I think, you know, Robin obviously is an evolved woman and looking at this rationally, not uh, like gotcha. a gangster would look at right, it. Right, so right. you have to put yourself in Tony's head. And again, just knowing the mentality of these guys, I said, and not only is it going to end with a beatdown, it's going to be humiliating. And um, we finally, you know, when it's funny when we we had the table read for that episode, and it ends exactly the way it's written with Tony showing up and Zelman is in bed and he's naked and Tony beats him with the belt. So at the end of the table read, Peter Rieger came to me and said, "Can I talk to you about this? I have a couple of questions about this." And I said, "Yeah, yeah, sure." So we were five or six days out from shooting that, and. Peter never said anything and never called me. And I said, all right, you know, I guess he, whatever question he had, it was, it was uh, answered. And it was the night of shooting it. And I get a call from John Patterson, our director, and they were on set blocking out the scene. And he said, Peter would lo- has a couple of questions he'd like to talk to you. So I come down and Peter is about to do this hard, really difficult scene where he's going to get beaten. And, he, and Peter said, well, wouldn't it be better if, if I was... Uh, you know, dressed and in watching TV. And then Tony comes, we have a conversation. And I said, no, it wouldn't be better. It would actually be better if we did it as written. And, he, and he's, and slowly it's like, he, I saw how uncomfortable he was. And he's like, you know, I, fuck, I don't know if I would have fucking signed on to do this. Had I not known if I knew that this is where it was going to end up. I don't know if I have always, I've always seen Zellman as kind of a tough guy. And I said, well, we, we, we never saw him that way. We see him as a vulnerable guy. And I said, Peter, look, I get it. Uh, there was, there was, believe me, I said there was no shame of cowering in fear if fucking an enraged Jim Gandolfini showed up at your house <laughs> at two in the morning. There's no man in this fucking world who's going to look at you and go, look at this pussy. Just, I'm, t- I'm sorry. I know how hard this is. I know we're asking you to go into a place you don't want to do. You got to fucking do this. And he went, God fucking damn it. And he went and he did it and he was great and at the end of it he came to me he said i'm so sorry i just you know sometimes as an actor you get really uncomfortable i was really uncomfortable and i let it get in my head i said but i said it's i said here's the good news is you were amazing this is going to be an incredible scene but you know you really sold it as you're describing this i'm thinking of uh, a line in my head university of michigan fucking figure it out <laughs> I, I honestly don't remember what that line is that's tony telling zelman that he's like because how am i supposed to do this how am i supposed to do this oh right. Says, <laughs> right university of michigan yeah yeah exactly fucking figure it out right <laughs> um oh. the weight yeah yeah i have a you can potentially solve a lot of mysteries in my head here or potentially just keep me wandering like the ojibwe saying in the wind yeah. right uh. This is the one, of course, where Johnny Sack wants to crack heads over yeah. the off-color remark about his wife. Sure. The remote dial-in sit-down with Junior. <laughs> You're a Catholic. I went to Catholic school. Yeah. I love the line. I mean, what happened to this thing? For God's sake, we bend more rules than the Catholic Church. Cut to Junior's face, and then back to Carmine. So either name a price or get the fuck over it which I've used many times in my life, by Mm -hmm. the way, in many different contexts. (laughs) Not to belabor here, but fucking pristine writing, coupled with the use of silence in between, it just never left me. Speak to the inspiration of that line, the Catholic Church line, Mm -hmm. and speak to this notion of Jeannie Sack as the Trojan horse of the Sopranos. First with the joke, then with the Opus Dei, 
So much of Tony's problems stem from her. Hmm. The Catholic Church, like I grew up, uh, had gone to Catholic school, uh, and, you know, very early on, you know, starting, it, things started to occur to me that this doesn't quite add up, this doesn't quite make sense, I don't really buy a lot of the uh, the mythology, and I, I'm sorry if I offend anybody who's, you know, staunch Catholic, I don't happen to be anymore, never was. Uh, but yeah, I mean, early, very early on, like by first and second grade, I said, this is not, this doesn't add up. I don't understand. Like, you know, the whole thing, like you're going to go to hell. Like, why would God create me knowing in advance? Cause he's all knowing that I'm going to use my free will to do something bad and then punish me for eternity. It's like, that doesn't make sense. You know, so, so many well of those things just didn't make sense to me. And, you know, the, the, in terms of bending the rules is like, oh, well, you know, the Catholic church at one point decided that purgatory no longer existed. And they just, you know, George Carlin had this great line, you know, purgatory in Catholicism was the place where they sent unbaptized babies. So George Carlin said, well, gee, I hope all those unbaptized babies got promoted to heaven and weren't just cut loose in space. <laughs> you know, so you know, when you think about it, it's just absurd. Like, so human beings decide purgatory doesn't exist anymore. Or, you know, it's it was okay, like you couldn't eat meat on Fridays or you couldn't uh, do certain things, but now they change the rules and because it, it's convenient. Or uh, if, if you're, um, you know, uh, church happens to raise enough money that weekend, you guys can eat meat on Friday. It's like, like, look, it either is or it isn't. These are hard and fast rules or they're not. And the Catholic Church would just change things. Don't even get me started on the pedophilia stuff. And, you know, I mean, which we also, I also referenced in in uh, in the show also, Paulie at one point had talked about yeah. it's the money, you know, they're, they're using for all the pedophilia lawsuits. So, um, you know, basically that was where that came from. Uh, in terms of Ginny Sack being the, the cause of a lot of problems, you know, I never it never really occurred to me but it was never a thing no no i mean it's just you know but you know it's interesting in terms of the you know the whole thought process of this episode you know these guys you know a lot of these mob guys you know they create these rules for themselves and then they you know it's funny talk about bending rules a lot of a lot of so you'll never rat i mean obviously so many guys over the course of the history have ratted constantly you know and they'll they'll rationalize well it's different here because well he ratted first or he was gonna rat on me so i'm gonna rat on him so it's okay for me to break you know the the vow of of omerta uh, you know with Ginny, you know these guys are so you know there are certain rules where you go oh obviously a made guy can't sleep with another guy's wife or if you insult my girlfriend or if you sleep with my ex-girlfriend there's all these hard and fast some of them are you know very hard and fast rules and some are just you know this is just no common sense as it pertains yeah, to them don't, you do not cross that line and johnny you know was, was backed into a corner he once he heard that this joke was made by ralph he was basically honor bound to defend his wife to the death and as much as it made sense to go, okay, John, figure out some other fucking solution rather than killing Ralph. It's costing us too much money. He had to take it all the way mm. until he was just confronted <laughs> with his own wife's fallibility mm. that she's she herself isn't even trying. You know, right. she's she's doing this thing. I think at some point, you know, I think Johnny told a story about Carmine that I had read about another mobster where a mob guy slept with another mob guy's wife. And of course the rule is, well, that's a death sentence. A made guy slept with another made guy's wife. So he came to the boss and said, I found out that, you know, so-and-so fucked my wife. I want to kill him. And the mob boss said, yeah, okay, great. Just not now. He makes too much money. I'll let you know when you can kill him. The rules don't say you have to kill him right now. Uh. You can't kill him. And a couple of years later, 
the boss called the guy and said, remember so-and-so, you had that problem, he fucked your wife? You can take care of that whenever you want. That guy had stopped earning enough money and wasn't worth keeping him alive anymore, so the guy got to carry out the death sentence, but it was years later. Mm. So, interesting. In the real life, Tony Soprano, the character that he's allegedly based on, he was a rat. He's in witness protection. Yeah, I honestly don't know who that is. The head of the Dick Cavalcante family at the time. Yeah. Um, I don't remember his name, but he's alive and kicking and well, and it's who Tony Soprano is purportedly based on. I don't know if you can... Yeah, honestly, I know I've never even heard that. I mean, I've, I know I've heard people say that the Cavalcanti family or there's another family, Boriardo, mm-hmm. maybe, but I honestly, David never talked about that and I don't know that that's true. Okay. Nobody's innocent in this, uh, this yeah, Omerta. Yeah, it's, this it's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah the, it's very convenient and again, it's, it's, it's a very uh, fast and loose set of rules. Pine Barrens, this episode has been picked apart every which way. But since I have you here, I just want to applaud one of its deep cuts. Hmm. When Chrissy's outside the van and things escalate with Pauly, by the way, I learned that that scene was in, a, in the studio. Silver Cup Studios, outside. yeah. Movie-making magic, right? When Chrissy's outside the van and things escalate with Pauly, he calls him a one-shoe cocksucker <laughs> and says he'll leave him in the... I'm so glad you're laughing. And says he'll leave him in the fucking dust. Uh-huh. And later, when Pauly's making a makeshift shoe out of burlap... Uh-huh. Chris says, Bruno Mogli over here, <laughs> mispronouncing it, of course, yeah. by far my favorite over here in the entire series. Because uh, it, it's just so, <laughs> it's so timely where they are in the woods. Right. And oh, just that's all I wanted to say. Thank you. There's no question. Thank it's you. just wanted to say well, that. It's funny. Guys like Chris, you know, who are, uh, you know, who aspire to be more than what they are. Chris had aspirations of being a screenwriter. A lot of these guys are, are very often self-taught. They read things. And it's, it's a, a lot of times the mark of a self-taught person was they mis- mispronounce things. Uh, they read things and then they met, they've never heard anybody else use that word. Mm. I have a friend who's like, oh, yeah, I, I know a guy who's an entrepreneur. I'm like, what? An entrepreneur? An entrepreneur? Right. He's never heard that word. That's wow. how he thinks it's pronounced. Or uh, emblazoned, he said once. Emblazoned. emblazoned. Yeah, you know, you go, oh, right. You know, or the great one is uh, for epitome. People say, oh, it's the epitome of, of uh, <laughs> <laughs> you mean epitome? You know, so it's like Chris is like that. So he probably saw Bruno, uh, during the OJ trial, Bruno Molly written a lot. And he thinks it's Bruno Magley. Yeah. You know, so that's a great opportunity when you have a character like Chris to put words in their mouth. Like, oh, of course this is what he thinks this is and, and only chris in that crew would yeah. know about bruno mogli's right yeah and it's just it's yeah. wonderful thank you thank you for writing that um university season three episode six what was the backlash of that episode like for you personally that was maybe the hardest thing i ever wrote yeah, it was you so pushed ugly. it over the table like was uh, there like i wanted i had to take a shower i felt i wanted to vomit it was really really hard uh, but i knew it had to be incredibly brutal and and horrible to sell it. You know, the whole point of that episode, not the whole point, but one of the points was juxtaposing the horrific life of Meadow having problems at school with a real horrific life of this girl, Tracy, who was beaten to death by Ralph. So it's interesting when we were shooting, you know, when we, we needed some horrible thing to happen to Meadow, uh, at college, I remember, you know, well, maybe something she sees on the street or some, some, incident and we just were riffing on like weird things we saw and i actually had seen this poor homeless woman excuse me on the subway who was wearing a plastic 
bag as a skirt, and she got up and had crumpled up newspaper stuffed up the crack of her ass. And I said, well, that happened to me. And Dave was like, that's perfect. <laughs> and I said, we're really going to do it? He said, yep. Meadow uh, was was on uh, on the train oh, and sees yes, that woman. With, at, yeah, with Caitlin. And that, to them, was like, oh, my God, what trauma. Juxtaposed against Tracy is this poor girl who's got a kid. And, you know, it, well, these wise guys end up getting beaten to death by Ralph. So it was really hard to write. And, uh, you know, and then we, we always shot it. And, of course, everybody really went for it. And it was just horrific. The backlash uh, wasn't directed at me personally. It was just directed at a show. I remember a lot of people online. And this was way earlier than early internet the early internet fucking internet but people like that's it I'm not watching this fucking show anymore it's too brutal you know every once in a while on the show we would remind people very very strongly that these are not cuddly fun teddy bears these are fucking sociopaths these are killers they're very funny they're great as long as you don't owe the money or you don't make an off-color joke that they get offended by they do not have uh, effective conflict resolution skills these are not nice people and very often they're the ralph cifaretto's of the world who will beat a girl to death with his bare hands and every once in a while that would stark reminder would come home and people would freak out well i thought these guys were fun yeah they are but they're killers either through conversation or something i might have read as you can imagine i've read everything and it's all just sort of like swimming around in my head um i liked your your answer echoes that that at that point in the show somehow the 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 culture the, of fans they they had fallen in love with these characters mm-hmm. um obviously tony but then his crew you needed a way to remind people almost that these are fucked up people yeah and that's what university was oh yeah designed <laughs> for and that to me i understand that i talked to, to tracy uh ariel kylie uh, right yeah, remember yeah. her name she did sure. the podcast as well and and she talked about how it changed her life and all of this stuff and people still ask her about that episode to this day is she acting she's not she's a yoga instructor in brooklyn oh man yeah Um, She was great. Which has been another fun thing about this project is like you saw them on screen in like a slice of life and these are real people that are doing real things in the real world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And it's kind of great to kind of just tie all that back in. David Proval is um, one of my favorite actors in the show in terms of Tony's antagonists throughout the series. He was sort of the template, if you Mm -hmm. will, for all the subsequent antagonists that Tony has in his life. Loved having him on the pod. It was a, it was a surreal oh, experience. House Arrest, season two, episode 11. You're flexing. <laughs> Who or what inspired that gem? Tony Sirico um, one time grabbed me by the bicep and I kind of flinched. And he said, don't flex on a friend. <laughs> and I was like, what? He goes, you flexed your, you flexed your bicep on me. I go, I, I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, when I grabbed you, you flexed. Don't flex on a friend. <laughs> I was like, okay. And that was like one of those things. It's just I had it in my head, and I guess that was the deal, I guess. Incredible. Yeah. You know, uh, David Proval does this when he says it. You're flexing. Uh-huh. This is now officially an emoji by Apple. Ah, that's so this great. This week, they made it an emoji. <laughs> There's so got to be a name for that. The, the, I don't know what it is. Italian but yeah. gesture. That's um, so funny. Big Girls Don't Cry, season yeah. two, episode five. This was your first, this was your break. This was this it. This is what yeah. started it all for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one where Chris takes an acting class. There's a great scene, Richie and Tony, Tony comes into the house to visit. He learns for the first time that he's living, staying with Janice in his mother's house. Mm-hmm. We got history together. Tony says, Israel and fucking Palestine. <laughs> then 
then I, I, I'm going to try to say it without laughing, but 10 years you thought about Janice. There are men in the can <laughs> that look better than my sister. Mm. But the best part of that scene is Richie. And I don't know if this was, if this was scripted or what, but it's, it's so effective. Cause obviously, you know, the metaphor of the eggs and in mafia movies, eggs are synonymous with death and he's, uh-huh. he's whipping up eggs. He says to each his own tone, to each his own. He turns around and he walks up to him with the fork mm-hmm. and the fork is dripping with the egg and he says, back the fuck off. Right. All due respect. Reflect on that scene and the chemistry of Jim and David Proval in general. When we were casting the role of Richie April, we had many actors come in who were physically really imposing. Guys who were as big or bigger than Jim Gandolfini. And they were reading the role and really, you know, giving it everything. And they were scary. And then David Proval came in. And David is probably my height. He's probably like 5'9", five 5'8", five maybe smaller. And he, instead of doing it with bluster and loud and in your face, it was all quiet menace in his eyes. He did not take his eyes off you when he was talking. And he was absolutely terrifying. And we're like, that guy is 10 times scarier than any of the guys who are 6'3", 6'4". Muscles marinara. Muscles marinara guys. This guy is scary. And it was it was amazing. It was chilling to watch. I mean, you, like, wanted to just give him your wallet. You know, like, holy shit, just this guy. And it's so funny because in real life, David is so sweet. He's one of the nicest guys ever and so funny. But he can turn those Manson lamps on and off. And, man, when he does it, when you're in that glare, you are, he's really fucking scary. So that was the first scene I ever worked with him on shooting. And I remember him that day. I remember being there shooting it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, when he comes to Jim and he's holding out that fork. You know that fork can very well end up with your eyeball on the end of it in in a second. And Jim kind of, you know, Tony kind of knows that. You know, we kind of wrote ourselves into a corner with Richie. You know, that character could have, had we plotted this out better, could have survived for a couple of years, but he was so scary and so much of a thorn in Tony's side. The only possible logical thing for Tony to do by the end of the season was to kill him. So when we talked about it, I said, okay, obviously he has to go. He's like, where is there to go with this guy? Tony, for self-preservation, has to kill this guy. And then we thought, well, it's so obvious that we can't have Tony kill him. What's, how do we get rid of him in a way that is unexpected? And we went, well, Janice. And we're like, okay. <laughs> and no one is going to see that coming. So obviously it's heading toward the direction where Tony's going to kill him and then Janice does, which makes perfect sense because Janice is as much of a gangster as her brother in a different way. Love that you said that. Um, another great moment in that episode is more of a statement than a question. Melfi talking to Elliot about Tony. She says, I have feelings for him on a personal level. He can be such a boy sometimes. Cut to... Tony handing Furio a baseball bat with a little <laughs> grin on his face to go touch up the, the brothel. Right. Beautiful. Yeah. At the end of this episode, Chris throws all of his scripts in the trash. Was any of that biographical? No. No. Any writer's envy on episodes you didn't write? Oh, yeah. Oh, every one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I, oh, I mean, it's so many. I mean, that's the best, yeah, the best uh, compliment we could give each other is like, oh, God, I wish I wrote that. That was so great. Uh, yeah, um, pretty much everything David wrote. I mean, just such great lines. Like, oh, God, I wish I wrote The uh, I remember, um, 
the Quasimodo, Hunchback of Notre Dame. They, I, I mean, I remember watching, I remember reading that and just closing the script and going, oh, God, I wish I wrote that. You know, that just that sequence was great. But yeah, just uh, I, I, we were all big fans of each other's work, you know, just just incredible stuff. And, you know, really, all, I, w- I would be in awe of David and Matt Weiner and Robin at the uh, the breadth of their literary knowledge these guys they read like every fucking book ever written I the mean, references on the show are oh, insane it's crazy and yeah. i'd have to go and in, into my office and google half of this stuff like i you know i i didn't have a great education in the sense of uh you know again automotive high school and stuff i didn't really read a lot of books you i don't were reading I mean, nietzsche yeah i never read any of that stuff i never read i'm not a big novel i'm not a big fiction person i read a lot of, i know a lot of history and i know a lot of just details about stuff but not i I never read the great canon of you know all these is not i you know I, I i know enough to answer some jeopardy questions and like shorthand and <laughs> who big literary characters are but that's not me but those people have read everything you know i, I often say i wish i could go back to college and actually pay attention this time or, or study but it was great i mean just listening to them talk about this stuff and it was it was great and and then it was reflected in their writing and they're all just again laugh out loud funny i mean matt Weiner in particular, I mean, it would make me laugh out loud, you know, five times a day. It's hilarious. Um, but yeah, I mean, I they some of the writing on that show was just it was just such a joy to read. I mean, the, the scripts would come in, and again, a combination of uh, you know envy and uh, admiration. I described a lot of scenes today with you, moments from the show. Is there a scene or moment that resonates with you to this day? I know you haven't gone back and watched it, but it's like reading a good book or seeing a good movie. There's, for for me, Goodfellas, I've only watched Goodfellas a handful of times, but I always remember the Copacabana scene. Is there something that is swimming in your mind about the show? The one scene that I always reflect on, uh, and it's because it's from the first episode I ever wrote, is Furio going into the uh, whorehouse with the baseball bat. We shot that at, four in the morning on a Saturday. Uh, we were running out of time. We were going to pull the plug. Our producers were going to pull the plug because we were at a 16, 17-hour day. And we had five minutes to get that shot. And the way Tim Van Patten and the DP, director of photography, designed it, it was going to be one shot. And it was uh, following... Federico Castelluccio in the place and it was a very complicated shot he walk gets out of the car and you just the camera stays with him across mm-hmm. the street goes in pushes the door open swats somebody out of the way starts swinging that bat goes all the way down the hall- hallway and that was one shot one take at 358 in the morning we got it we wrapped and that's what you see in the show and I remember being so excited when we got it because that was one of the first things we shot in that episode. And Furio uh, was a new character on the show. And Federico, we had just cast him. That episode was actually shot out of sequence. The Italy episode aired, Commendatory aired before that, but we shot episode five first before Mm. Italy. So that was the first, one of the first days Federico ever worked on the show. And he was terrific. And that scene just, it all came together and it was such a great, uh, team effort to get that thing done and get it on film and that was in the show and I remember early later that day Tim Van Patten called me up and said holy shit that was amazing man we really got that it looks great I just saw it played back and it, and it looks great and it was just it, to me I, it's one of the first things I remember because it was very early on in my 
tenure on the show, and it was like, wow. It was a defining I, moment. Yeah, this is going to work, you know. I, I love we it. We actually can do this. It's a great scene. Thank very, you. Very beautifully done. Um, and one of the few action sequences you get in the show. I'm going to leave The Sopranos to round this out, ask you a few questions post-Sopranos, and then I'm going to wrap up with a lightning round that I finish off with every guest. Hmm. What's the genesis of your relationship with Martin Scorsese? I had finished up on The Sopranos. I was on an overall deal at HBO, and once I got my first deal, continued into several more incarnations of that. So the idea was going to be I would be, I developed my own show for HBO, and I didn't know what that was going to be. I had not even had time to think about it yet. Uh, just wrapped on The Sopranos, and I came in and I met with Carolyn Strauss, who's at the time uh, the president of HBO, and uh, we talked about different ideas. And she said, well, you know, I do have a book. uh, It's called Boardwalk Empire. It's basically the history of Atlantic City. Why don't you read that and see if you think there's a TV series in there? And my first reaction was like, who gives a shit? The history of Atlantic City? Like, what what is that? So I went, yeah, sure. And on my way out the door, she said, oh, by the way, Martin Scorsese is attached to that. And I stopped in my tracks and I turned around and I said, Okay, great. I said, I don't even have to read it. Yes, there's a TV series in here, and I'm going to find it. And for those that don't know, when he's attached to it means that if it is If something greenlit- develops with it, yeah, he's, he's going to be involved. So I went home, and I said to my wife, HBO just handed me a TV series. I said, what are you talking about? I said, they just gave me this book that Martin Scorsese's attached to. Now, if that's true, and I figure it out, they're going to do it. There's not, they're not going to not do a Martin Scorsese series. So she said, well, go figure it out. And I read it. And for the most of the part, the book was pretty dry. But then there's one chapter about Prohibition and this guy, Nucky Johnson, who was the treasurer of Atlantic City during the Prohibition years, which was very significant because he was corrupt. And Atlantic City is on the ocean. So that's where all the alcohol came from. So you got a corrupt city official who runs a big party town on the ocean during Prohibition. I said, this is the show. This is the guy. Boom. Uh, you know, so that's how I first met Marty. Right at the same time, uh, like literally within months of each other, I wrote the first draft of Wolf of Wall Street, too. So I remember, I think Wolf of Wall Street was the first thing he read. And then I remember the first meeting I had with him about Wolf of Wall Street, he goes, oh, yeah, I also got your other thing, your your prohibition thing. I like that, too. And uh, it was, was like, OK, great. And then Marty called me up when he read the pilot for Boardwalk Empire. Originally, he was just supposed to be a producer. And he called me up and he said, I think I want to direct this thing. And I said, okay. And I almost fell out of my chair. And he said, how do we move this forward? I said, well, I said, there's a guy named Richard Plepler at HBO. He's the head of HBO. If you call him and tell him what you just told me, I'm pretty sure we're moving forward. And five minutes later, Richard texted me. No words. It was just all exclamation points. Clearly, Marty had called him. I was like, holy shit. Scorsese, Scorsese asked you. going. Yeah, how, do we, how does this work? <laughs> how do, he didn't really know a lot about TV. He never watched TV. Wow. You know, this is a funny thing, too. Even casting vinyl. Marty did not know who Ray Romano was. Marty cast Ray Romano not knowing he was Ray Romano. <laughs> he just liked that guy. That guy's funny. And Alan Lewis said, you know, that's, he's Ray Romano. He's a very big sitcom What star. did Ray Romano think of that? He, was, he laughed. He was like, that's, it was such a great, uh, it was so flattering because he got cast because he's a good actor, not because he's Ray Romano, this big sitcom star. Marty had no idea who that's he was. Amazing. And he said, that guy's really good. And that's how Ray met Marty. And now Ray, of course, is in The Irishman and, you know, is, is sort of, you know, Ray's an incredibly talented actor, dramatic, oh, like, incredible. Yeah. But Marty had no idea who he was. So, yeah, Marty didn't watch TV. So he, he even, I, when I first met Marty, we had to talk about the distinction between a series and a miniseries. 
And I said, no, this is a series. This will go on indefinitely. A miniseries is a finite amount of... And he's like, oh, okay, that's interesting. You know, just just really not in his wheelhouse of interest. Mm. And then ultimately then became really enamored of the idea that, wow, this can just keep going. And you go do stories about different characters. Long-form storytelling was something he became really interested in. Fascinating. So, but for me, just very quickly, and I've told this a million times, but it's absolutely the God's honest truth. Taxi Driver was the movie that got me interested in writing and interested in movies. That movie blew my mind. I saw it 20 times the first summer it came out when I was 16. And that was the first movie that stopped me in my tracks and made me think, like, what is it? Why is this different? Who did this? Who's this Martin Scorsese guy? What else has he done? That's the thing that made me a fan of cinema and thinking about movies as something more than something to do on a weekend. And I was like, that was the thing. So to flash forward, and this was the great mind fuck of my life, to flash forward 30 years, yeah, 35 years, I'm at the Academy Awards, nominated for uh, Best Adapted Screenplay for Writing Wolf of Wall Street, a Martin Scorsese movie. I'm sitting in the audience. Comes time, the Academy Awards are going to be giving out. The Writing Award is going to be given out by Robert De Niro. Robert De Niro comes out, and I realize this is my fucking category. I think, oh, my God. If I get handed an Oscar by the guy who starred in Taxi Driver for writing a movie for the guy who directed Taxi Driver, I'm going to pass out on this fucking stage. And, of course... God prevented that from happening and saved me the humiliation of passing out in front of all you people. But it was one of those moments that was absolutely surreal. I was like, I cannot believe this is here. I'm here. I mean, can't believe I got to this point with Marty or, or any of this. I can't believe I get paid to write for a living. Honestly, I still feel like this is, you know, any day now I'm going to wake up and it's going to be 1977 and I'm late for my job at the deli and this is all a dream. But yeah, pretty crazy. This, I got to be honest, is my mindfuck equivalent, <laughs> being able to sit down with you and the, the fact that this has even taken on the life that it has. But the story about Scorsese that I'll always remember of yours is how when you got to go to his house for the first time to <laughs> pitch ideas, yeah. you thought it was a pitch meeting, but it was something entirely different. Yeah. I just, it's such a human moment where you're early and you're pacing and you're thinking and I've been there and so many people have been there and to, to hear you describe being in the chair at the Oscars and, the, and that trifecta or triumvir, to quote Tony Soprano, triumvir, whatever the fuck. That's in, that's incredible. Well, what made it even more incredible is my wife was also nominated for an Oscar for producing Dallas Buyers Club. We were we were the second couple in history to be nominated for Oscars at the same time for different movies. Incredible. And that's the kind of thing that you know we laugh about. We say like, if we had even in our you know, giggly alone time said, can you imagine if we both got nominated for Oscars at the same time? It's like, it would be too stupid to even fantasize about. And it happened to us. We were originally told we were the first couple in history. And a week later, the LA Times called us up and said, we actually have to retract Fact that. You're actually, yeah, you're actually the second <laughs> couple. It was actually Rex Harrison and his wife in 1962. I think she was a makeup artist and he, Dr. Doolittle, whatever. you're number two. But yeah, many, many couples have been nominated for the same movie. We were nominated for both. She did, again, Dallas Bar club and i did wolf wall street so we got to do that whole oscar campaign together together which is just unbelievable yeah. yeah just crazy legendary stuff real quick on boardwalk empire was jim ever in the mix to be involved in that project in any capacity no although jim would have been incredibly perfect casting jim kind of bears a resemblance to the real nucky okay big strapping bald guy but i knew not to even ask he just played a gangster right. i was like I, I would love to have worked with him but we didn't i even had to ask just yeah of I... course it would have made perfect sense but he just you know and then wolf of wall street i read that you said you wanted to write it in the style of goodfellas yeah 
but that you had to sell that model to Scorsese. Can you talk about yeah. why? Well, when I read the book, uh, a lot of the book is uh, it's all told in Jordan's voice. And he's, he tells stories. Like, in addition to telling the story, he'll, he'll do an aside or he'll make a comment about this guy. Well, this guy looked like, you know, uh, I remember the one guy uh, with the toupee, you know, he described the toupee. He looked like a fucking, you know, dead rat on his head. So a lot of the stuff in the book didn't lend itself to dialogue. It lent itself to voiceover. So I thought, oh, wow, I wonder if I could do this have voiceover in it you know a lot of people use voiceover sometimes as a crutch you know where they can't really figure out how to get it organically into screen so they'll just have a character describe something but when voiceover is used effectively if it's really funny or it's a counterpoint to what you're seeing on screen or mm. it adds things if it's done effectively as it is in goodfellas and casino it, it's it's a great a, a great device and it also just so perfectly lent itself to the way Wolf of Wall Street was done talking directly to the audience so when I when Marty signed on to do this I needed his permission you know I wanted to make sure he was cool with it so I said I kind of see this as you know written in that style and he said it's interesting because I see this movie as a companion piece to Goodfellas and Casino I was like, oh, my God, that's unbelievable. I said, we're totally on the same page creatively. I said, so you're okay if I he said, yep, yeah, write it like that. And I went, and it was so much fun to write. Oh, it was man. great. I went back and watched it again. It's a funny story. I had two small children, like, climbing all over me while I was watching, and I had the headphones <laughs> on. They're like, when you hear it, the scene with uh, McConaughey, the, his character is Hannah. Mark Hannah? Yeah, Mark Hannah. Um, and my son saw saw him doing this. He's <laughs> like, I want to watch it. I want to hear what he's saying. I'm like, no, it's, <laughs> yeah. But it was, it was just, it's such a ride. And the whole time you're watching that movie, as if from a viewer's point of view, you're thinking, the reason the voiceover works so well is you keep on thinking, or I kept on saying to myself, this fucking guy, you know? Yeah. This this story is it, his arc is insane. I got the book uh, from a friend of mine, uh, Alexander Milshon, who I didn't know at the time. She's a producer. Sent the book through my agent. It was in galley form, and she pitched it to me over the phone. This guy on Wall Street is crazy, and, I, and so I I thought, okay, I'm going to probably read thirty pages of this and and pass. I read it in one sitting. I could not put it down. I mean, the, first of all, the similarities between me and the real Jordan were basically the same age. He grew up in Queens. I grew up in Brooklyn. Little con men as kids, hustlers. He sold Italian ices and bagels on the beach. I did the same kind of shit. And I was like, I totally understood who this guy was, even down to the point where I was on the floor of the Merrill Lynch trading floor in 1987 when the stock market crashed. I was in law school working for Merrill Lynch during the day. A quarter of a mile away at L.F. Rothschild, the real Jordan Belford started his first day as a stockbroker. Stock market crashed. He went off to sell penny stocks. I went off to law school and then to Hollywood, and then 30 years later, we came back around. And I was like, I know this guy. I just understand this guy. This is the script for me. Um, funny thing about Matthew McConaughey being cast, Matthew was in the process of losing a ton of weight to be in Dallas Buyers Club, the movie my wife was producing. You could see it. Oh, yeah. yeah. And he was already down like 30 pounds while we were casting uh, Wolf Wall Street while Marty was casting Wolf Wall Street. So Marty calls me up one day and goes, yeah, I just cast Matthew McConaughey for Mark Hanna. So I knew he was already down 30 pounds and looked crazy skinny. So I said, oh, did he come in and meet? And he's like, no, no, I just offered it to him. 
And I said, okay. And I was like, holy shit, wait till Marty sees what this guy looks like. <laughs> so a couple of weeks later, Marty goes, Matthew's really skinny. He's doing some <laughs> movie. And I, I didn't tell him it's my wife's movie. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he comes in, but it worked out perfectly because he's like this coked out, you know, stopover. Yes. And it was great. But he, yes. he was down 30 pounds. I think he ended up losing another 10 after that for the movie. But it was so funny that, God, of all the movies he's in the middle of, it was my wife's uh, film. Wonderful. Um, real quickly, and then we'll move on to the lightning yeah. round. Vinyl, I'm a huge music head. Part of the reason why I'm had yeah. an affinity for the Sopranos. Vinyl had everything going for it. Yeah. You've been in this business and you've been crushing it left and right. All the T's were crossed and all the I's were dotted. What mm-hmm. happened? Uh, I think it's a lot of what didn't happen. Um, you know, good example is you look at Netflix and The Irishman. They've got a Martin Scorsese movie. There's not a person breathing on this planet that isn't aware of The Irishman. So we had in our vinyl pilot a Martin Scorsese movie. Now, I'm I'm no studio executive, but if I were running HBO, I would have made a virtue of the fact that our pilot is a Martin Scorsese movie set in the world of rock and roll with Mick Jagger as executive producer. Instead, they chose to put it on Valentine's Day on a Sunday night at 9 p.m. without telling the audience what you're about to watch is a movie. So if you're in your chair at 9, you think it's over at 10 and you're going to go to bed, assuming you're not out with your girlfriend or your wife on Valentine's Day. Worse yet is we went up head-to-head against the premiere of The Walking Dead. So I remember calling the head, then head of HBO and saying, why are we doing this? Oh, don't worry about it. It's a different audience. And I said, there is no other audience. Everybody is watching The Walking Dead, including me. Oh, no, no, no. It's, uh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Anyway, we premiered. On Sunday night at 9 o'clock, if, assuming you weren't watching The Walking Dead, and 10 o'clock comes in, the show's not over, and then 10.15, and 10.30, and 10.45, and the fucking thing is still not over, people were like, what the fuck is this? Not knowing you're watching a movie. So, again, assuming you weren't watching Walking Dead, you were watching this thing and, and confused. So the next day, turns out Walking Dead gets like 14 million viewers. Vinyl got 600,000 people. So the headlines... For a lot of people who want to bring down HBO, the headlines read, Vinyl is a disaster. So if you hadn't seen the show and you saw that headline, you go, oh, it must suck. Actually, the reviews were actually really good. The reviews put us in the zone of hit show. But if you see Vinyl's a disaster, you start, oh, I heard that shit. And I, I go, no, no, you didn't hear it shit. You heard nobody watched it. It was a ratings disaster, but it's not a bad show. Mm. But we were fighting the perception all year long that it's a horrible show. Oh, I heard it stinks. So suddenly we're pushing this rock up the hill. So by the end of it, they instead of instead of taking responsibility for what I consider to be the incredible ball dropping of promoting that show, and again, look at the Irishman with Netflix, boom, 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 Martin Scorsese. All up and down the street right here. Totally. Yeah, right out the window. Uh, they basically abandoned the uh, the promotion of that show. And then when season two came along, so they go, oh, well, the problem's with the show. And they wanted me to fire my entire writing staff, who were incredibly talented people and honestly among the best writers I've ever worked with. And I said, no. I said, we clear. I said, look, I will make some creative changes in the show, but that's not the problem. You guys got to stay behind me and stick behind me, and this is going to be the show. And ultimately, it got to the point where it really was creative differences. And I said, look, this is the show I signed up to do. This is the show I want to do. I'm ready, willing, and able to continue with that. If you're not interested, go your own way. They asked me to step aside or forced me aside, brought on two guys who had never done TV before. I'm sure very, very talented in their own right. And I've truly never met, I've never met one of them. Uh, and 
once I realized these guys had never done TV and now were coming in, taking over this massive show where they had to keep this thing on track and then take direction from Mick Jagger and his producing partner and HBO and Marty, I called Bobby Cannavale. I said, buddy, start packing your bags. There's no fucking way this is going to work. I said, unless these guys are like the luckiest, smartest people in the world, so many things have to go right now mm. that it's just mathematically impossible. And the show, they never got off the ground. I think that within three weeks, they pulled the plug and that was it. And it's really a shame. I'm really proud of the show. Uh, I loved every single person I work on. It kills me now when I watch The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel Every one of those crew people was was my crew from Vinyl. The whole crew. That's awesome. They're all they all just shifted onto that. And I'm thrilled for all of them, but it breaks my heart because that show should have run for four or five years easy. And it was just I think HBO just dropped the ball, and that kind of ended my tenure. I stayed on for another year, developed a couple of things for them, I wrote a movie for them, and then I left after 19 years. And um, wow, yeah, it was just heartbreaking. From my point of view, I remember reading this and seeing all the stuff in the headlines and the circles that I'm in and people that are aspiring to do creative things when we see that someone like terry winter can't get the fucking show to go like what are the rest of us doing right. that's that's yeah. what it, it, it's a paradox yeah well sometimes it's beyond your control i mean i you know i i stuck to my guns creatively again i was I, like and i i think i'm open-minded enough to know i know when something's working i know when it's not yeah. working i i will stick to my guns on that show yeah could we have made adjustments of course but overall that was the show we wanted to do and I was proud of. And can't make I, wholesale it change. It kills me, too, when I get people come up to go, yeah, man, I really like that show. What happened? Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, sometimes, again, it's beyond your control. Yeah. Thank you for talking about that. Of course. Lightning round. Make it as short or as long as you want. It's, a, it's your time. And, and, again, thank you so much. This is insane. Yeah, this was fun. What do you like to see in a pitch? I like to be entertained. I like to... Um, be curious. I want to know what happens next. Uh, you know, if at the end of it, I'm thinking, and then what? That's sort of key. Uh, you know, for me, I like conversational pitches. When I pitch, it's more storytelling. I like to sort of back into it. You know, once there was a guy, you know, I'm, I'm working on a show now uh, called uh, Precinct. It's a pilot I wrote for FX. And essentially, uh, the idea for at least the pilot season, and it's going to be an anthology where each season takes place in a different police precinct at a different time in in history. You know, very often uh, police precincts uh, have a, a situation or time in history. You go, oh, you should have been here in the 80s or the 1982 and the shit hit the fan, whatever that particular thing is. And let me tell you about that time. So a good example, season one of this show uh, is set in Anchorage, Alaska in 1974. Anchorage, Alaska in, in 1974 was like this small kind of Mayberry town with like 15 cops. And then the Alaska pipeline came in. And overnight, seemingly, 5,000 oil workers would come down and descend on Little Anchorage. And it was like drugs and prostitution and violence and biker gangs and all this shit. And this little police department had to handle that. Oh, there's also a serial killer. Really happened. And this little band of cops had to deal with this shitstorm of people. And that was Anchorage, 1974. Miami, 1979, you know, the cocaine wars between Colombians and uh, Cubans. That place will turn into the Wild West, where suddenly machine gun fire was happening every day. Uh, New Orleans, Hurricane Katrina, you know, 300 New Orleans cops fled their posts as that hurricane was coming in, leaving a skeleton crew behind to deal with that storm. You know, so that's the pitch for the show. You know, so for me, it's like, you know, as soon as I formulated that, that's the way I want to hear it. You mm. know, like short, sweet, boom, totally get it. Every year's a different time and place. The year the shit hit the fan, that's the show. 
Yeah. Is the Alaska show happening? I just turned in the pilot to FX. Maybe. I hope so. I'd love to do it. I'm in. Cool. I love it. All right, great. I love Got that. one viewer. Anchorage, Alaska. Well, anybody that's listening to this, too, you count them in. All right. Um, I've heard you say one of your greatest challenges is staying one step ahead of the audience. You actually said it in this yeah. uh, conversation as well. How do you go about doing it? Just to, by trying to defy expectations. I mean, I think about what I think is going to happen, and they go, okay, well, obviously that can't happen. I have to think of a different way. You know, the Janice Ritchie thing was a perfect example. The audience knows Tony's got to kill this guy. They think Tony's going to do it. And it's like, okay, well, that can't happen. Uh, you know, we are so programmed from 100 years of cinema and 70 years of TV to be, you know, audiences understand the language of film, they, the, the language of storytelling with the tropes. This is obviously what's going to happen. It's so hard to stay ahead of the audience, but it's... It's so satisfying when it works. I mean, when you when you fall for uh, you know the uh, the storytelling technique that you can't see what's happening, it's the greatest thing because you're so used to being able to. No, I remember, you know, watching bad network TV as a kid. I'd say, oh, okay, and obviously this guy's going to come in and he's going to be the killer. And my friends go, oh, you've seen this already? <laughs> no, it's just obvious Formulated. that's where it's going. And, of course, nine times out of ten, that's where it would go. And the one time out of ten where it doesn't go that way, you go, oh wow, you're in the hands of a really good storyteller, and that's what we try to be, or I try to be. That's The Sopranos in a nutshell. Yeah. It keeps going in directions that you, um, it toes the line, comes close, but it doesn't cross it. Yeah. But it gives you something that's real. Right. What shows do you enjoy for pleasure? You know, I, I honestly don't watch a lot of TV, uh, or if I do, I watch a lot of, uh, you know, it's a lot of Tony Soprano ask of you. I watch the History Channel. I watch... Uh, <laughs> You know, you documentaries. Yeah, all, very often. <laughs> I am late at night. Uh, I watch more nonfiction stuff. Uh, but, you know, of the shows I do watch, I really think Fargo is excellent. Uh, I like The Crown a lot. I think that's really good. Um, Love the model of, like, changing out the actors. Yeah, yeah. Just, that was really ballsy. Really ballsy. Really interesting. Yeah. Uh, those are two that come to mind immediately. But, again, I, I, I watch a lot of documentaries. I, I don't watch a lot of fiction and or read fiction what are some books you've recommended to people recently i just finished listening to can't hurt me the book by david goggins who's an ex-navy seal who broke all kinds of like distance long distance running records and pull up uh uh records it, it's a motivational book but it's actually just his life story is fascinating i've recommended that to people uh, what else did I read recently? Um, I read a, a biography of Jack London that I just recommended to people. Um, are you an audiobook guy? I or? am. I, I'm both. I, I, I read, I, you know, I, I like to listen to audiobooks when I'm in the car. Uh, it just saves time and I listen to one at double speed so I can just blow through it a lot quicker. And it's, you know, a lot of high pitched squeaky voices, but you, your brain can just take it in. Yeah. Audiobooks so are kind of dull. They need to like, yeah. they need to fix that yeah it's a, it's a yeah. model that they can improve on yeah well this, this double speed thing helps a lot because you can you can do a 12-hour book in six hours so yeah. so you just saved all that time uh the jack london biography was really cool um you know most of what i read is for work so it's you know but which is actually helpful anyway because i i like this stuff anyway so yeah. i just reread the book tokyo underworld which is really great it's about the american occupation of japan uh, post-world war ii uh I've, I've read books on uh, i've reread havana nocturne recently uh books about alaska you know so i mean i'll recommend stuff to people whether or not they're interested <laughs> you know sidebar about uh, yeah. world war ii in japan the um, the japanese camp 
in Manzanar, California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was driving down from Yosemite with my right. son on a road trip, and I that's when I got the text message from uh, Nicole saying, David asked me to send you this. So I will never forget pulling over at, at Manzanar. Manzanar. My son's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm reading something. Hold on. Anyway, you mentioned the World War II, and I was thinking that. I was just there. Yeah. What music have you been listening to lately? Uh, I've been listening to a lot of uh, contemporary music because a lot of my day is uh, spent ferrying my kids around. So they listen to, yeah, so they listen to hits, the number two channel on Sirius or it's whatever, you know, I, and it's so funny. I've I've become that old man who has no fucking idea who anybody is. I just say everybody is Taylor Swift. And even that's like now old. It's like, that's like five years ago. Uh, So I've been listening to a lot of that. I, I just generally bounce around. Uh, classic rock uh, for the most part. I went, you know, on Boardwalk, I ended up going through a phase of a lot of 1920s music. Mm. Then I go in, which is, was so great. That was such a great education for me because I came into that I show with the idea that, oh, it's all the Charleston, it's all bullshit, and it's just great music, you know. Uh, Randy Poster, who was a music supervisor, just started sending me incredible stuff to listen to. Uh, so that really opened up my eyes. But, you know, for the most part, I'm just, I sort of bounce around through cra- classic rock stations and, you know, again, back to, you know, listening to podcasts or, or uh, books on tape. Howard Stern is a you know, huge Howard Stern fan, uh, always have been, and um, news junkie. Randall Poster is a music supervisor, right? Yeah, he's great. Are you a jazz head? I, I, no. No, okay. Because I, I saw something where you were at a jazz standards concert and that guy who was singing changed your life. Oh. Uh, wow, I don't know who you're talking about. Is it sure it's me? Yeah, yeah. It, it, uh, God, jazz you were you were at a you were at a concert, or you were listening to some guy singing jazz standards, and um, it was before it was when you were still a lawyer in New York. Oh yes, yes, yes. That was Mel Torme. Yes, yes. yes and I sat next to uh, Larry Gelbart. That didn't. No, it wasn't the music. It was okay. the idea that Larry Gelbart was there. I had I actually taken a date. It was 1988, I think. I was 27 years old as a lawyer at the height of my, uh, or 88 or 89, at the height of my misery being a lawyer. And I, you know, the one good thing about it was I was living in New York and had a little money. So I took a date to see Mel Torme at this really cool jazz club called Michael's Pub, where Woody Allen used to perform. And it was really great and it was really cool. It was in the fall and Mel Torme was there. And, and during the show, Mel said, oh, I'd like to just say hi to a friend of mine in the audience, uh, Mr. Larry Gelbart. And Larry Gelbart, of course, is the guy who created MASH, and he wrote Tootsie, and the uh, funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Major, major writer. was on your show of shows with Sid Caesar. Legendary writer. And Larry Gelbart, and this is again pre-internet, I didn't know what he looked like, happened to be sitting at the table next to me. And he gets up and waves, and I was like, holy shit, this is Larry Gelbart. And at that point, I had been thinking about the idea of like, wow, could I be a writer, as a TV writer? And here for the first time in my life, in the flesh, was a man who had not only is not only a writer, is at the peak of his career. And I'm all night, it's like ruined the show for me. I'm just looking at Larry Gelbart, and I'm whispering to my day, that's guy that created MASH. He's like, had no didn't know who he was, didn't care. But it was just, I was just kind of like, holy shit, this guy is real. And he's out with his wife and he knows Mel Torme. And this is a real flesh and blood guy who lives and breathes and eats like everybody else. He's doing it. <laughs> Why can't I do it? Which we all seem to forget sometimes. Yeah, right? I'm like, this guy is just a guy. And that's, I don't know what I thought he was going to be, but it's like, this is just some fucking dude. And uh, years later, again, you know, 25 years later, I... Uh, finish up on The Sopranos, and I win something called the Penn USA Award, which is a very prestigious writing award. And 
at the time, you know, uh, the agencies and CAA, who's the agency I've been with uh, for forever, took out a full-page ad, and it said, we'd like to congratulate our clients, Terrence Winter and Larry Gelbart, for winning the Penn USA Award that year. So I was like, I went from sitting next to this guy at this club thinking, oh, my God, could I ever do that too? He and I are both being honored on the same night for the same award, represented by the same agency. And I told that story that night when I accepted the award. I said, you know, Mr. Gelbart, you don't know. We've kind of met before. And I told that story and got to take pictures with him and meet him. And, yeah, it was just, again, one of those surreal moments where you go. Well, the number of coincidences in your life that you've articulated yeah. in this conversation it's is crazy. Truly, truly yeah, amazing. it is amazing. Finally, um, I'm a huge basketball head um, obviously I want to, if you want to let listeners know any projects that you're working on right now that are near and dear to you, I read about a LeBron James project. Yeah. I'm a huge nerd of basketball. I was devastated by the Kobe tragedy. Of course. Can you say anything about what's happening there? Yeah, the movie is at Universal. Uh, we are uh, inching toward uh, production, I'm told. I'm really uh, excited about it. Uh, the genesis of it was uh, was actually the day my wife and I got married uh, in uh, in Las Vegas. Uh, it was Tasteful Las Vegas, not Elvis Las Vegas. Uh, we were sitting up by the pool, and my wife was reading Vanity Fair. And she she's very emotional. Uh, she cries at everything. And I look over, and she's crying, reading some article. And I said, what are you reading? She goes, this is the most most beautiful sports story I've ever read. It's the story of LeBron James and his friends growing up in Akron. And Maverick I sh- and Maverick Carter, yeah, and all those guys, uh, Lil Drew and the, and the whole crew. And she said, these guys, these kids stayed together for their childhood and basically, you know, won these championships and basically enabled LeBron to become LeBron. And she said, I'm making this fucking movie. And I said, honey, if you're reading about it in Vanity Fair, somebody else is already making it, and which was true. And she said, I don't care. And I'm going to find out who's making it. And over the course of the next 10 years, she ended up getting the rights and the life rights to all these guys and flew back and forth to Ohio from New York and met with LeBron and met Maverick and all these guys and got this movie set up and we got this great writer named Frankie Flowers uh, who wrote the first draft and got it to Universal and they love it and it's, you know, on the road toward getting made and uh, we're really, really excited about it. There's a wonderful so documentary. Yeah, not- my wife and I are producing it. Okay. I did not write it. Uh, there's a great documentary called More Than a Game mm-hmm. that tells the story, which is one of the best sports documentaries I've ever seen. It's just great. Yeah. Very cool. I'm yeah. excited about that. Me too. Terry, this was an honor and a privilege. Well, that's very sweet of you to say, but it was my pleasure to be here. Really fun. Uh, I'm so glad. It's so great to talk about the show and to know that there are people out there who, uh, who still are as uh, excited about it as I was to do it. Thank you. Sure. Sure. 